want you to listen. Then what? Share it. The Melbourne Youth and Social Workers Group and the Knowledge on Tick podcast would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land, the Boonarong and Wurundjeri people, their elders past and present. We would like to acknowledge and pay respects to the land, her children and our families. We would like all of us to show respect for each other, Mother Nature and the creatures on the land and the sea. Hey everyone, the Melbourne Youth and Social Work Facebook group would like to welcome you to the Knowledge on Tick podcast. We are Josh and Nat and we will be your co-hosts for the potty. Knowledge on Tick is a podcast offering real-life conversations and insights every week with workers in the field covering a range of topics surrounding the youth and social work world. We are so grateful to have you here and happy listening. Uh, welcome back to another episode of Knowledge on Tick. I'm Josh. And I'm Nat. And this week we're joined by Claire. Thanks Hello. for... <laughs> Thanks for joining us. Um, could you give us a little introduction about yourself? Oh, well, it's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for coming. Chuffed to bits. Um, as you can tell by my accent, probably. <laughs> um, I am half English-Irish and I've been in Australia since 2003. Um, I have had 30 plus years in the sector. All right, so you kind of guessing my age now if you're listening and it's old um uh my background is through social work and then um i did further ed and i'm a mental health worker um some forensic study and clinical psychotherapy um, and i still have a private practice but my work in australia has been really through the community sector and working with ngos various NGOs, really focused on family violence, sexual assault, sexualized behaviors, high-risk youth, complexity, highly vulnerable, marginalized people, vulnerable people, the more complex, the better. That's what I'm drawn to, yeah. 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 Ah, awesome. Um, We've covered off heaps of your work experience, which we'll get into in a little minute, Um, but we'll go through the questions. Okay. We will start. So the first one is, what was your first ever job? Yeah, my first ever job back in the UK. So I was in a little town called Stafford, which is in the Midlands. My dad was in the RAF, so we, he was based there. That's how we ended up there. Huge Irish community. And it was picking gooseberries. Oh. Do you know what a gooseberry is? No? It's not very nice. It's a little <laughs> green prickly fruit that grows on a bush. Oh. And you make gooseberry jam. Not nice to eat raw, they're very sour and sharp. Is it like a spiky shell on the outside? No, it's more like a spiky fur. Okay. (laughs) It's bright green. I don't think if I've seen it anywhere. I feel like I have, but never eaten one, that's for sure. No, never eaten one. You can find them in this. We've got some, we've, you know, we've looked high and there. My husband has a veggie patch and we've got the posh ones with the little flowers at the top restaurants use but you just can't find a humble gooseberry yeah, in right. Australia but that was my first job picking them because I wanted a pink shopper bike and uh, I does that mean like it's got a basket at the front yeah. yeah yeah right okay it was pink and it had a white basket at the front and a pink tartan ah. kind of case at the back and big white tires yeah 
and I was about 14, 15, and I wanted it, you know, and, you know, back in the day, you know, you asked your mom and your dad, and they said, you've got to work for it, you know, the value of money, and yeah. Yeah. you'll love your bike, and you'll look after that bike if you pay for it, so I did a couple of months. I saved up enough for the bike and an outfit to wear while riding. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah, that's awesome. And um, yeah, that was that was my first job. I love it. <laughs> that's so cool. Did you have to travel far? Like, was it close to home? You could, because yeah. you couldn't ride your bike yet. No. So could... yeah. <laughs> well, I can remember vaguely. Yeah, I remember being in the field, picking yeah. it and having a lot. You know, it was you know it was we didn't really worry about insects and things back then. And it was in the UK, so nothing could hurt you, right? <laughs> but um. I do remember a bus and everyone, all of us kids jumping in this yeah. old like vanny thing and all sitting in the back. But I can't, I don't, I'm not confident that's about that or it yeah. could be something else, but I think they link together. Yeah. Yeah. I know yeah. I had to go up really, really early mm. and go out. So I think yeah, you had to go in this van and I got picked up, they picked up the kids en route, took yeah. them to the farm and then dropped them off. Yeah. Yeah, gooseberry picking. Nice. I love that. Love I want to try some jam. Yeah. Some gooseberry jam. I'll get my mom to send some over. <laughs> yeah, <perfect. laughs> I have a little parcel. I'll ask after my nan about it. I can't wonder if she's had it. Hmm. Um, if you were a WWE wrestler, what would be your walkout song? Oh, this is such a good question. I have <laughs> such a laugh. We've gone from Monty Python. <laughs> always look on the bright side. Yeah. Uh, Don't Stop Me Now, The Queen. Yep. I, I was thinking, oh, I want, what did they call it? They put all the songs together. Like a mashup? Yeah. I was thinking, oh, I can't focus on one. But I think... <laughs> Think. Claire comes with her own remixed, <laughs> remixed walkout. Yeah. I want a montage. I can't cope yeah. with just one. It's just yeah. too much fun. Um, and I was sort of teased around with Mercy by Duffy, you know, to see if I get a bit of sympathy from the person in the ring. But I'm going with Shaka Khan, I'm Every Woman. Ah, oh, yes. I like that. You that know? wins. From the 80s. Yeah. Strong. Yeah. Fun. Yeah. Bit tongue in cheek. When you said Monty Python, I was like, "Oh, how are you gonna, how are you gonna beat Monty Python?" But I think you got a good one. I can picture oh, you think. walking out, like you know, with that song blaring too, like maybe like the belt over your shoulder or something, yeah. just like confident. Big hair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Big lipstick. Yeah. Big grin. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Ready to smash someone with a chair. <laughs> yeah. Jump onto a table. Yeah, you can really I love it. Get some drama going with that kind of thing. Really get everyone in. So that was that was was hard though to settle on one. Good answer. Yeah, I like I that. I like it. Is, uh, I'm not sure of the, the artist you said it, though. Are they English? Shaka Khan? Yeah. Oh, that's a, I thought she was American. No, oh, I don't know. Because you had a few English bands that you yes. were toying with, which I love. So. Yeah, there was loads, yeah. loads. Yeah, yeah. But I think, I don't know if she was American. She had big hair. Yeah. Okay. I like, and I, you know, I looked a bit like her in the 80s. Yeah, I had, right. I was the big backcomber, big hair. <laughs> you know, I embraced the 80s. It was a brilliant time to that's be young. That's cool. Um, but yeah, she. I think she's American. Yeah. Okay. Bit of a soul singer. Yeah, I can picture that. Good oh, answer. Nice. I like that one. The next one is: if you had to change careers, what would you do? Well, I always sort of toyed with being a play school presenter. <gasps> You'd be so. Good you would be so good at that. <laughs> I loved play school, and yeah. I kind of, you know, I think I'd have been all right on the telly. Yeah. I reckon you I would think too. you would have been the best on Play School. I love it. I was actually watching Play School the other day. Well, I can't sing. Oh, but neither can I. <laughs> no, I really. Me and my sister, we 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 wanted to be a backing group. You know, we wanted to be the backing singers in the group. Yeah. And we set up our own little backing singers kind of 
you know, code. We called ourselves Cat's Chorus. <laughs> <laughs> so out of tune. We could dance. Yeah. I could outdance anyone. Yeah. But I can't sing. So play school was, you know, shut off from my from my dreams. So when you did you watch play school as a kid? Yeah. Was it the Australian play school or was there an English one as well? There's an English one. Oh, really? There's an oh, English one. Okay. I don't, you know, I, I don't want to be controversial, but I think it might. I wonder which one was first. English. English, you reckon? <laughs> I would say so. Yeah, I mean, I'd probably, probably put my money right. on yeah. it. Oh, they probably so sell funny. it. It's like anything. You start something off and they sell it. Because we have yeah. Blue Peter as well. But they just sort of start in yes. one country, don't they? And they sure, yeah. They sell out. Because but... I thought Play School was iconically Australian. So I feel a little bit like my bubble's been burst. Oh, I'm so That's sorry. Okay. But yeah, I just thought it was Australian. Do you know what that I... reminds me of? I've got... I'm just sorry. I'm going on a detour. And I do no, this because my memory's not good. But <laughs> We love detours. I was working with this um, couple and uh, I claimed ACDC as English and uh, he got really, it was really, really annoyed with me because yeah. he said they're they're Australian. Yeah. Well, no, he's Scottish, the singer, isn't yeah. he? Mm. Yeah. I mean, I think, I don't know a lot of, I actually don't like ACDC. <laughs> <laughs> You're a record, yeah, I know, mate. I don't. I don't, yeah, it's... Yeah, anyway, I, I don't Can like we reflect thing. on the other guests we've had that have said ACDC? Yeah, You'd be uh, like, yes. Oh, yeah. No, because they said Back in Black is a walkout song, which I can get I into. I don't know their songs. I only yeah. know what they look like in my head. I can yeah. see someone yeah. in a school uniform and a tie Bomb doing Scott. a funny dance. Yeah. yeah. And I can see the lead singer with his kind of curly mm. hair and mm. his really raspy voice. Yeah. And I knew he'd come from Scotland. Yeah, correct. But I think, so I think he, he had come from Scotland, but the band was formed here and I think he's yes. technically Australian. Yes. But um, that's what this client, yeah, very irate, told them me. As being from the UK, when I was counselling. <laughs> Did you just turn wrong? wrong. I broke You're the therapeutic. Wrong. Yeah, yeah. No, I broke the therapeutic alliance. Now I was counselling them for family violence. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> fell down, settled down. Over Akadaka. No, right. I wanted to play and see how far I could steer, but I thought, no, be professional here, Claire. Yes. Just sell that one down. You can have them. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's one of those things as well with like. Play school. I probably would have assumed that play school is an Australian thing mm. too. But how often are you watching UK TV? Yeah, not heaps. Awesome. Not yeah, not like that. No mm. English shows is I was about to go. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, but you're yeah. right. Yeah, you're right. Like but true TV. channels. Yeah, good we'll point. all be googling this. Yeah. yeah. We'll have to Google. Find out. We don't fact check. That's the thing, Claire. You could come on here and say whatever the hell you want. We'd be like, yes, yes, we love it. More of that. Oh, thank you. I'll take that on board. <laughs> I'll revisit some answers. <laughs> Um, all right. Can you tell us about a time at work that you've made a mistake and cool. what have you learned from it? So I've had 30 plus years. With zero <laughs> mistakes. Um, <laughs> it's funny because you forget them because you get good supervision and you integrate them and then they can just sort of be a healthy memory that goes away. Mm. But I did think about trying to nail this down. And one what, what that stands out, and it does make me laugh, mm. is probably... It's about over 15 years ago. It's in this country. And um, I was running a care team. I was chairing. It was a team leader of a family services program. So the case manager was there, all the professionals. So it was one of those big care teams with lots of professionals. And it was it was in another professional's building. And I was chair. And there was the mom, dad, and a daughter. And there was... It was, a, it was around what we were trying to achieve in this care team meeting 
because the daughter had expressed that she wanted a career in hairdressing, but the mother was not having a ball. Um, she just, uh, the daughter had a disability in terms of an intellectual disability, and then the mother was just really, you know, I think reflecting now, she probably was really worried and anxious about a child moving into a more independent, mm. uh, in, you know, into that individuation and maturing out. But at the time, it sh she just sort of presented as quite a really aggressive mom who was really putting her daughter down, you know. Um, but I handled this care team meeting and the educators spoke and they spoke so highly about the, the daughter uh, in front, you know, there was mom, dad, daughter, she could do this, they believed in her, you know, all the stuff that we do really well, that strength-based, really validating, really, you know, bringing the hope into the room. Um, and mom was getting crosser, you know, and angrier, and, you know, she kept sort of, it took it really personally. And I could see all of this, and I was the chair, so I sort of thought, you know, back in those days when I was taught, you name, you name something, you know, you'd be quite direct. So I sort of directly sort of shared my observations that she was very negative and it might be potentially very hurtful for a daughter to hear what she's saying and what does she think a daughter, you know, what does she see the future for a daughter? She was furious <laughs> at me <laughs> and um, she basically told me what she thought of me, stood up and left. And so that left dad and the daughter still in the room. So, you know, we sort of, well, okay, it was kind of, she let me have it with both barrels, <laughs> stayed a little bit, and then she left. Right. Kind of thing. So we just carried on talking. You know, she could have gone to Lou, we didn't know. Um, and then within a few minutes, Dad got up and left. And I'm thinking, oh, <laughs> this is not going well. And then um, the daughter, God love her, she stayed in. And we really tried to rally around her and comfort her. But within probably another few minutes after that, she got up and left. And so it was like, all of them left. <laughs> it was bad. It was, it was then a professionals meeting. Oh, no. I know. And it was, um, yeah, it was, you know, it was quite embarrassing because I was chairing and, it, you know, I had all these other professionals. But it was also very human, yeah. very understandable. And, you know, you just, you just push through it, don't you? But um, she got in the hairdressing. Yeah, wow. She got it. Yeah. She got it in the end. So sometimes, you know, when it feels like a disaster, mm. and that felt like a disaster, mm. um, you don't really know the outcome. And I've seen that so many times when I've, you know, felt like it's not been a great meeting. Mm. Because I've been around so long, maybe five, ten, I get news that somebody remembered mm. and they might not have liked what you were delivering, but it created a shift. Yeah. And it created a change and it planted a seed and the direction was changed. So I talk about the dance of agitation. I've, I've sort of learned to do it a lot better than those days. Mm. I kind of move, you know, agitate smooth, agitate smooth. But back then I was still learning. <laughs> More <laughs> agitated than smoothing, yeah. I was very good. I was a crap dancer. Like, I'm okay now. <laughs> oh, that's so interesting. I, I was, I'm waiting for the, like, trying to figure out, like, I'm just picturing in my head, like, what was so bad about it but like you said you know you don't really know what's going on for someone underneath everything and yeah it's just a funny i'm just picturing it and god just to reflect on care teams hey like oh, so no. difficult to run sometimes and if you mm. 
there's so many people in the room that all have their own agenda, not necessarily in a bad way, but um, and then and then having the family there as well is mm. so challenging. So I can totally feel for you in that position, oh. you know, or anyone in a care team in that position. Yeah, yeah it's uh, um, anyway. Yeah, that's a, yeah. It's I think it's a great conversation talking mm. about care teams and the challenges. I think yeah. it's a it is a really huge skill i think it's a leadership skill mm. it's a finesse yeah um and you've got to really hold a room yeah um because it's because people are getting distressed um and i don't know whether we do we understand that as a sector mm. and we don't manage that because you the other complication and nuance in that is obviously that our funding body is also often a lead case manager and what does that mean? I, I've got a funny story about that, that when I first came out here and I was in a child protection care team meeting mm. and the child protection case manager was sitting next to me and I was again in a leadership role and um, she looked like she'd just come out of uni. She was really petite, really smiley, really, but you would think, you know, if she was an animal, she'd be a kitten. <laughs> like, you know, you just... She's not I, jaded by the system yet. <laughs> well... That, that that's what this is what made it so surprising that in in the mean I was advocating for the young person from my agency's perspective and um, she just turned around and said like in that beautiful kitten mm. kitten face said I pay your wages in the meeting in the child protection building with the other professionals wow and the family I pay your wages like, you directly if so can you up those yeah. or? You know what, that, that's what i said you know i thought i'm i'm okay all right so i sort of said no i don't think you do mm. <laughs> i don't think you do I, I work for this company and da, da, da. um and this again i'm going back wow 15 years and um <laughs> so no i do this is a well you know I, I don't think we're on the same page with that and she said I sit next to the person who does all the budgets and I know that I pay your wages and you have to do what I say. Oh my gosh. And I know. So this kitten had really, I was like, and it was, just, I could see that it would just go back and forth. I said, mm. you know what, I, I think we're going to have to agree to disagree. Mm. And, you know, everybody never, nobody said a word. That's what I reflect on again. It's this, that we're all in there. We've all got these space, but, you know, there's this sort of rule. I think are people sort of surviving or feeling really like they don't want the drama or I don't understand. It's a bit like what we're talking about with the police, you know, it's mm. just like you've got to join the, the mass. You've got mm. to be you've got to be safe in the mass theme rather than be an individual. And then we've lost the art of advocating. Mm. Yeah. You know, so what's the compromise and what does that compromise mean for the child mm. at the end of that? So. There's many, many times in care team meetings, I can feel my heart pounding out of my chest mm. and I know I'm going to say something and, and I know that I won't be able to not say it because what that means to me is I'm not doing my job and yeah. I'm not advocating for the young person. Mm. And when I've seen that, if I say it, some, you know, a lot of the times I just get the conversation moved into a different place. And it just takes that one person, you know, to be brave. Absolutely. Um, but yeah. It's, it's terrifying. Mm. You know? Yeah, managing complex care teams is huge. I think it's people just think it's sort of um, just like a general part of your role as if, you know, answering the phone if it's ringing is. But I don't um, think there's enough sort of 
support put in place for people in managing complex care teams with things like having the confidence to disagree with yeah. eight other professionals you're sitting in a room with. Yeah. Particularly if there's a young person or family member that's present. Yeah. Mm. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And, it, and it's confidence and skill mm. Mm. to hold the conversation mm. and keep it like, you know, like I, my mistake was I didn't have the skill. I had the confidence and didn't have the skill. <laughs> but that's something that I think is uh, about your professional maturity and your professional development. It comes with mistakes and it comes with time and it comes with great supervision mm. um, yeah. as well. Um, but if you've got the confidence, I think I, I would say go in there, speak your truth respectfully um, and always make sure you before you say, how does this help the young person that I'm in here representing? Mm. And if you feel that it needs to be said, let that be your confidence because I wouldn't do that for me but I will do that for a young person. Yeah, which often we will we'll do for young people before we do things for ourselves. Have you, have you got something in your eye, Adrian? No. No, okay. Well, we'll finish off with the last question before we get uh, into lots of um, more things, I'm sure. I was hoping the motorbikes would have gone by I then, know, but so they're I'm not. rolling my eyes without yeah. rolling my eyes. <laughs> yeah. For, for whatever reason, at 5.30 or 6 o'clock on a Wednesday night, they roll up next door anyway. Fine. I can tell you exactly what. But anyway, moving on. Moving on. Um, the last one is: What are your self-care strategies, and do you think you implement them well? Well, at my age, if I'm not, I've got a lot of explaining to do to myself. But I think, for me, where my strength is drawn is that I have a very long happy marriage. And if you think about attachment theory, mm. it really matters to have that secure base. And you think about that, you think about so many people who don't have that and have to go in for these and be exhausted and be challenged and can't offload or can't resync or can't find joy when they just sort of, you know, be seen and be accepted and have that experience. I, I've got that experience. I've got a relationship with somebody who I don't have to be anything other than me, you know, and, and a family. I've got two teenage boys too, and, you know, we always seem to say you be you you know that's a sort of thing that we bounce around in the family quite a lot of humor as well mm. very comical but that this healthy marriage that i've got this person who knows me good and bad and accepts me um, without judgment uh, is everything oh, i don't think i could be in this industry and be the little fighter that i am in this industry without him and without that relationship, and it, you know, I'm not saying it's some kind of Hollywood perfect. It's not, mm. but it's based on real respect, and it's based on individuality within the unity. Mm. So we're two separate people who know how to be stronger together, mm. um, but really respect each other's individuality. And uh, I'm super proud of achieving that. Mm. That's my biggest achievement. And I often say to my boys, you know, the biggest gift when they want something expensive. The biggest gift mom and dad's given you is a happy marriage mm. for you to grow up in. And I know, and you guys know, how how true that is and how many kids don't get that and yeah. what what that how that impacts them and what that means for them in an ongoing way in how they navigate then their romantic relationships or any relationships without that model uh, you know, sort of guiding them, mapping them out. So mm. marriage 
behind that, I would say I do. I become one of these ladies, and there's, I ring my mom and my sister up in the UK, and I'm like, I've still got my school friends in the UK, and I go, I become one of these ladies that exercises outside in a group with a PT. <laughs> 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 and they're laughing. Like, I love it in public, and I'm quite a shy person, and I can't believe it. You know, with all my gear and everything, and and it's become a joy. Yeah, it's become an absolute joy for me, and it's just a giggle. I don't. Nobody takes it too seriously. Yeah, and I go with my best girlfriend, my wifey. Mm. <laughs> She's a big deal to me because um, I've got three males in my family, so I need this female yeah. to be everything to me, and we just laugh. Um, but we're also getting fit um, and we do boxing and something called Tabata, which I'm not sure, but it's hilarious. <laughs> and um, weights. And uh, it's just a joy. And uh, it makes me love living in Australia because you couldn't do that in the UK. Yeah. Yeah. A bit cold. In your lycra. You, yeah. <laughs> you'd yeah. have to have your full rainproof gear and you, know, you have to have an umbrella yeah. doing your squats. <laughs> Little marquee that would probably blow away in the wind. <laughs> But yeah, uh, so cool. it's just these moments. They're just innocent and they're they're small, mm. but mm. they're full of fun and laughter and connection, um, and that's what I've got. Mm. That's amazing. Mm. I laugh like I was giggling when you said the outdoor um, sessions with a PT. I can't remember what show it is, but it's. I feel like it's something you and I have both watched, but there's these two young females that they can't afford the class, so they just stalk this PT in the park and they do his so on, class um, from... Broad City? I think so. Yeah, they're American, they're in New York. Do his yeah. class from afar, but he gets really angry yeah, yeah, yeah. and starts chasing <laughs> And they're just constantly running from him, but they think it's great because they're like, well, not only do we get the workout, but then running from the PT is <laughs> a workout as well, so it's our cardio. And it's so funny. Oh. Yeah. I love the innocence in that. It's yeah. just pure innocence, isn't it? We get told off for talking in every class. So that's... <laughs> no, I always get told off. And you yeah. feel, you know, it just feels just in the moment. So it's good to be alive, That's right? when you need to go, oh, I pay your wages. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. You need to spin it back. It's your time <laughs> to pull again. the wine out. And this time it's true. That's right. I'll talk if I want to talk. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a professional talker. No. <laughs> I, I love being told off. I mean, for me, it puts me in that sort of child role. Hmm. And what a great thing that is in our work, you know, that I can just be mucking around and getting told off. Yeah. yeah. That's just a joy to me. Yeah. It's it's humbling, like, learning new skills and stuff too, you know. Like, you, like I think I really enjoy that about exercise and, yeah. and whatever it might be, whichever sort of skill it is you're learning. And, yeah, it's just keeping the mind ticking over and the exercise. Mm. Did you, did that, was that something that happened for you because of COVID? Yeah. So, we used to go to the gym. Okay. And that wasn't nearly as much fun. I, yeah. I, you know, the yogas was fun. I was namas- we just, me, me, me and wifey would be namasteing all the time and <laughs> laughing at all the bodily noises that were, you know, inadvertently happening <laughs> involuntarily. <laughs> <laughs> Which was just hilarious. <laughs> so namaste was a kind of a code, like... <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, it's just silly, isn't it? Yeah, it's just cool. silly and fun and that inner child stuff and just not taking yourself seriously when your work is so brutal mm. on that part of you, you know, so you're just switching out of that completely. Yeah. Um, and I do think I am a big kid. You know, mm. I, I like childish humour and I like laughing. Yeah. And I like adventures. Like uh, me and uh, my friend, we were... we. She, I drive her everywhere. She hates driving, and we were running lower petrol. And she was getting quite anxious about got to get petrol. I'm worried, and I just 
rolled the window down and put my head down and went, help! <laughs> and just kind of laughing. Just takes the, you know what I mean? Yeah. We don't need to worry so much. That's right. Yeah. And we lose that as kids. As we get older, we lose yeah. it, don't we? Like yeah. my gym that I go to, it's called UFT Playgrounds. And the ethos behind it is is to play, to exercise with to play. And they do traditional exercise there. There's, um, what do you call it? What's everyone do these days? Uh, CrossFit. And yes. like I do Muay Thai and there's like wow. a strength and conditioning and all this sort of stuff. But often before the classes start, we'll play, um, you know, like dodgeball where you throw the ball at each other or, you, or like tag or tiggy. But you've yeah. got like you hop around on one foot and you got to tag someone and... Even the thing like where you crawl between their legs to like free them once they've been tagged and things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And of course, it's warming up, right? You're running around, you're up, yeah. you're down, you're hopping, you're jumping. Like you're warming up the yeah. same way that you would if you were to go run up the street. But you're laughing and mm. you're being vulnerable and, you know, like with other people you don't necessarily know so well. But it's so much fun. Like it's funny and, and fun and it's it's like... Free. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah Freeing, absolutely. That's right. But I remember like there was this, uh, it's sort of, I don't know, yeah closely connected but i saw this meme thing on facebook that was um there's one there's a time when you go out and play with your friends for the last time mm. you know and i was like oh that's a bit sad because you know true, there though. is that one last time that you went and played with your buddies but like why yeah to bring it into like a, a gym like that or like you said do the, the pt and have a laugh with it yeah yeah it makes so much sense right Mm. It's your gym's a, a bit more serious than mine. <laughs> oh, it is and it isn't though. Like there's serious people there, but then I go and I just learn and like I do like like all of like my classes and stuff. Like so many of the people in my class are all like 18, 19, 20, maybe like early 20s. There's a few that are similar age to me in their 30s and stuff. But You say that like, like you're 70 years old? Yeah, I know, but most of them are so oh, young though. Oh, I'm feeling. Shush. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, anyway um you touched on before we've touched on a few different things but work-wise we said before the podcast that you you might give us i called it the greatest hits but i feel like that's more like a retirement (laughs) sort of like name for things so i won't say that but i guess like a a synopsis was the word you used of some of your work history because it's pretty extensive work you've done so could you give us an overview and then we might pull a couple of pieces out and have a chat Sure. So in the UK. Sorry, I was I was going to ask, what? what was your first job in like the social work yeah. field? That yeah. Kind of drifted in because I started off in a law degree. Oh wow. So my sister's a lawyer. So and again, just to give a, a picture because I like to give I like talking stories. Yeah, that's great. So mom, what is Irish? She's the Irish, and she came over at age fourteen. She said the nuns kicked her out because she had nits, but I'm not. <laughs> I'm not oh, so sure. <laughs> Might not have been. Me. She says everything with a straight face, but I sometimes I realise, really, mum, <laughs> you know, I'm, all of these things. Like she said, um, like you know, when you're kids and you're you're demanding your breakfast and your things like that, and you you know, the parent always in the parent role. It's like you know, you you've taken all the things I do for granted. Well, mum, she mum took it to the next level, so we'd be all got an older brother and sister we'd be all like where's the rice krispies or where's the cover <laughs> and mum would be going you kids in an irish accent you don't know you're born for breakfast i had to walk 10 miles to milk <laughs> the cow <laughs> to get the milk to get back 20 miles to get to the school and the convent and yeah. the nun greeted you with a clip around the ear <laughs> and, you're like, and you're sitting there you're thinking as a kid you're sitting there thinking 
oh, I don't really care. Yeah. <laughs> it's Bobby Rice Christmas. But now it's just the humor and the, yeah. the hilarity of, yeah. of what she was doing. And, the, you know, I didn't, it didn't occur to me that she wasn't telling me the truth mm. until quite recently. Yeah. <laughs> it's just what she did, right? But I just didn't really invest in it. But I've been back to where she was and she was raised in the middle of nowhere in a, in a land that time forgot, you know, the whitewash cottages with no electricity in the outdoor toilets wow. yeah. in the green landscape and um, real poverty. Like you were talking Angela Ash's poverty, you know, mm. flitting in the middle of the night because Nanny had no rent and, and uh, it, 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 she's just, you know, living in haunted houses next to the grave, you know, graveyard and the banshees combing the hair coming to take you away to the, you know, I was raised on all of this spiritual wow. and clairvoyance and all this sort. Mum was just a great storyteller. And dad is Welsh, um, but raised in the UK, Nottingham, um, middle class. But his mum was a really bad alcoholic. Um, and dad uh, has an older sister who he really, you know, was really uh, close to, but she was about 12 years older. So dad was sort of, he had a terrible childhood. We, we would remove him. Mm. He, he was, she, you know, he describes never having a birthday, coming home from school, mum was down the pub, men coming home and, you know, his mum had dragged home from the pub at night. If, you know, and as you know, I, you know, I've been a sexual assault clinician and I don't know whether the, my mum and dad's stories dragged me into the field mm. because I listen. You know, I'm a listener and mm. I'm a thinker. Um, and I thought about their childhoods no one protecting them. I mean, my mom was, well, my mom is a beauty. Uh, stunning, dark curly hair, green eyes, real fine features, and she's just a stunner. And she was, um, mom, her mom and dad left her for two years, left Ireland to go to the UK for work. You think about Ireland and the poverty. And she was a beautiful girl, and she was left with her adult stepbrother and sister. So you think about the vulnerability of my mom and dad in these sort of family systems. Mm. Anything could have happened to them, and maybe it did. Um, I've asked, but they haven't told me many times mm. in many different ways, <laughs> whether they've been sober and you know drunk to try and you know weasel it out of them. But they're not giving me anything. But they're giving me their stories, mm. and I'm grateful for that because mm. how many of us get an in-depth? I've got these you know really rich stories of my family that I'm very grateful for because we are family storytellers mm. and I think everybody should come from or hold that sort of legacy about their parents. Yeah. Um, dad was 18, mum was 19 and had my brother. So these broken, innocent kids with no family stability playing at parenting. Mm. Brother first, born a year later, I'm three and a half years later, born in Cyprus. My dad was out there in the RAF fighting um, in the Greek Cypriot war that was going on over there. Yeah, right. So I came into this world in a kind of conflict space. Mm. Well, I was born in this strip of land that was neutral territory, like the Switzerland. Yeah, right. You know, there's some symbolism in that, isn't there? Mm. Yeah. You know, like I brought the peace. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, no, but to be fair, even looking at you, Claire, you're quite a peaceful person to even be around. I don't think that's. Yeah. You said that being a little bit silly, but your persona is actually quite peaceful to to be around. Yeah. I remember so that saying does... that to you. I said, Claire's like the most lovely person. Like I could just sit there and talk to her. And like, I, yeah, when I talked about having you come on, because mm. of how, how we worked together in a previous role, 
Um, but yeah, I found the same thing, even like doing consults with you and yeah, I totally mm. echo that. Yeah. Mm. Which is so important, I think. And you probably, one of those things that is like, you don't realize what you bring to, well, you know yeah. what your strengths are, but some of yeah. those, I don't know what you want to call them, like subliminal strengths or something, it's not the right word, but um, that would be such a um, asset to you in all the roles you've had, but you probably just don't process it yourself because it's you <laughs> yeah you just be but, you're just being yeah, that, aren't you yeah, yeah. you know you're just being yourself just being in my own skin mm. just mm. doing the best and hoping that's enough yeah but i i especially when i was a sexual assault clinician mm. which i loved um and again it's that drawing to complexity that drawing to story mm. and that's you know that's so important because i feel i felt really clearly i've got to sit with you even if your story is really hard if I can't sit with your story as your, you know, clinician, as your therapist, how are you meant to sit with it? Mm. So I feel like for all of us, you know, and when I when I do training and things, you know, and I have, I think it's about coming back to being a human with another human. Mm. It's not, it's, you know, all these practice models that come out and they're evidence based, but I think, and I think that's great. But when you're my age. They're all tweaked and they come out and they're quite so, and you think, oh, really? And we're all cleaving and we're all excited about them. And I think that's awesome too. But do we forget the fundamentals? Do we forget how powerful it is to be someone who can just sit with and connect? Mm. And isn't it that what it's all about? Yeah. You know, so for me, I just Absolutely. sort of work with people who are really anxious about doing the right thing. And I say, can you just sort of move that, you know, saying the right thing, being everything, um, fixing, you can't fix. Mm. And why would, you know, have, why would you want your story fixed? Your story is your story. Mm. You know, you can't sort of press erase. You've just got to find a way of being okay with your story. Mm. You know, and finding a way of, um, you know, knowing that you write your story as an adult onwards. Mm. You know, you might not get the opportunity to sort of do that as a, a young person or certainly not as a child, but the pen comes into your hand or the keyboard <laughs> comes yeah. into your hand and you will get the chance to write the endings mm. and, and your story for yourself as you live it. So, that you know, I just don't, when you live a long time, you just realise that that's just a moment and it it's okay. Mm. I truly believe and I've, I've sat with and listened to some really heartbreaking stories, horrific stories that will never leave me. But I just, it's not recover, it's just be okay with. Mm. And, and I think that's enough for a happy life. Yeah. And a really sort of centered way of, of being everything we can be on this planet. It's a really beautiful way to look at it, particularly I think of clients that I've worked with who are sexual assault victims it's a really beautiful way to look at, it's not about recovering or getting over it. It's about just being okay. Yeah. About you being okay with that being a part of your story. Because yeah. I think sometimes there's so much pressure on recovering and treatment and, you know, getting to the other side or seeing the light at the end of the tunnel, you know. There's so much that for people who maybe aren't at a stage where they're, they're ready or willing to participate in that process, the whole concept of recovery for whatever that might trauma might be is so overwhelming to even commence because recovery, well, how long will that be? How long, you know, whereas the concept of just learning to be okay with something, not erasing it, yeah. not, um, I guess, trying to pretend it didn't happen, yeah. 
but being okay with that just being a part of your story for you to rewrite your own endings. Yeah. I think that's a really beautiful way to look at recovery without labelling it as a specific, yeah. It takes a lot of pressure. Yeah, you're great because the system can put a lot of pressure on yeah. and a lot of judgment on. And um, I think for me, you, you, you do you, right? Mm. If this is an awful, awful thing that happened to you, it should never have happened to you, you know? But, but you've got to find a way of being okay with this being in your story. Mm. But it doesn't mean it's the end of a story. It's just something really rotten that happened in your story. Mm. But you can, you know, move on in your story. Yeah. You're alive, mm. you know. And on some level, that means you're going to be okay. Yeah. And I think it's, it's a message of hope, mm. but also a message of power. You get to do, you, you know, you get to say how this is or isn't going to affect you. You get to control this. Yeah. This happened to you, that took the control away from you in the most horrific and cruel way that anybody could take control of someone. It's the most, you know, it is the most sort of dark, cruelest thing that someone could do to someone, mm. isn't it, really? It's a really externalization of internal pain, is the way I sort of see it, mm. that someone could do that. They're really a human who is not in a, in a whole lot of psychological pain could not do that to another human in my view mm. whether they they know that they are or not there is some distort there is something not working and it it's you know maybe sometimes it's internalized and sometimes it's externalized but having studied and worked with perpetrators adult perpetrators i can't call anyone under 18 a perpetrator um there is something in there, a theme for me, that I keep seeing around. A sense of being visible through hurting other people. Mm. Because if you think about that, then there's this, that in that moment, somebody sees you, not in a nice way, but you, you are present for them in a brutal way. Mm. But if you are invisible, and you need to be seen, and you've got no other right way of getting that need met, this is a way to do it, mm. I guess. When you have, and it's tricky because, well, you, you know how to answer the question in the right way with your um, keeping everything in mind. When you've worked with um, adult perpetrators, do, do, do you ever get a answer that you feel is not the right one, but the, the realist, you know, if you would, and I guess, do you ask that question? Why did you perpetrate this crime against somebody? It's a really hard space that, you know, the way I cope with staying compassionate and attuned and available, and that's really hard sometimes, mm. you know, especially when, you know, I've done a lot of private practice work, done a lot of clinical work, done a lot of consultancy work for child protection, this year the department and I think for me there is there is always something to feel except for one occasion I've always been able to find a way of making sense of the darkness in a human that is so big for them so heavy so painful and awful that you know, they just can't hold it in and they have to 
sort of that shadow has to come out and touch another person. And when I'm training, I sometimes I do this diagram of uh, violence by, and then you have the arrow down, and violence to other, violence to self. So you think about violence as a as a really powerful energy, you know. And once that violence goes into someone else, it just can't stay there. Mm. It just can't stay. It's gotta it's gotta either you know be sort of transmuted into something else mm. but the, but the violence has to move it's a dynamic force maybe or something like that like a storm mm. and if you if you're in it the storm gets passed on because you can't hold that storm in yourself yeah that's kind of how i mm. hope that makes sense but that's yeah. kind quite of a good visual way can, to do, yeah. to explain i think yeah to, you know. to, well you're quite a visual person Mm. Do you know how I pictured it when you talked about it? When you put water into a glass container and you put it in the freezer, like it's going to expand and burst. Yeah. And although your example sent the anger going out of the visual, either to self or to others, mm. I pictured the glass smashing. Like it comes to a breaking point, you know, that the glass is going to crack. But And do you, in I guess in your experience or, or the way that you've learned, it's to self or to others, there's not really another option, is there? Because it can't sit in you. It has to come out and it's to yourself or someone else, right? Yeah, I've answered my question. And you think about, <laughs> you think about then, you think about the fairness of that. Violence by another. So you've experienced violence. Mm. And then you think about, you can't contain that. That, that was such a painful, or, you know, you've got the residue of that bubbling away like a yucky, yucky wound, mm. you know? that you can sort of put a plaster band-aid over, but it's seeping and rotting in you, you know? Mm. So then you do something, it comes out maybe drug and alcohol or, or rejection or something, means you can't, even your energy's been trying to just sort of, you know, hold it and be a good person. And then something triggers you and boom, it leaks out and you, you've got to own then. And this is what really interests me, because you've got to sort of make sense of yourself as, am I, am I a good person? Because I've just done that. So you do then got to sit with not only experiencing violence by another, but then working out, I'm no, I'm just as bad as the person that did that to me. I'm the bad person. I don't want to be a bad person. I don't want to be, you know. But how how can I make sense of what I've just done? Mm. I'm going to blame the victim or I'm going to blame all the other useless people who didn't see this festering nastiness in me and help me mm. or you know what I mean because yeah. and you can just see can't mm. you how it can just sort of get to a very difficult situation and I, well I see it mm. I, I, I'm one of the I'm, I must be a <laughs> spotter or something because even when I have my private practice mm. and people came in for all sorts of reasons I would say 90% of the people that I treated in that practice, I identified sexual assault. Mm. And I had people over 70 to kids. Mm. But I, yeah. I, I did, I, I sort of thought, do I attract it? <laughs> Is it me? Am I kind of a magnet? And I, th and I think, you just, we've got no idea how many people have suffered mm. in this way. I think oh. it's very, very big. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, definitely. Huge. Um, 
I thought this was uh, up in the air. Is there um, a consensus in the, I guess, the um, research sort of world that um, people who have experienced sexual abuse or physical abuse will then become perpetrators? Because I feel like I've heard arguments for there's not a correlation and I feel like I've heard there is definitely a correlation. What's your take? I think it's awful if you've been a victim of that that you've got to sit with worrying about it. I've just done a forensic uh, certificate um, and what I've learned and understood from that and the research that comes with that is that that might be a variable but there's many, many other variables. Mm. So um, I, I think sometimes the academic world wants to simplify something Raising it's so it's too too complex. Mm. I, I do understand the need to do that, um, but I think sometimes that can take us in the wrong direction and away from, you know, understanding and working with the complexity of a human, with multiple experiences, multiple multiple inputs, mul multiple variants on their capacity. I don't know about you, but sometimes you know I can be a really good driver. And sometimes, God, I can be crap. You know, do you know what I mean? I think everybody wants everything to be static and mm. predictable. Well, mm. it's not. Yeah. It's just not. Yeah. And we've got to get used to that, that you yeah. know, that it's dynamic, that you can make an assessment about anybody one day within 30 minutes, everything that you thought in terms of risk or what could be turned on its head, mm -hmm. especially with our young people. Mm. with what's hitting them you know it, it, you know in this in the world that they live in it's just so complex and fast-paced mm. i just think you know it's just so dynamic yeah it's so interchangeable so you've got to lock in on something really fundamental i think yeah um behaviors right up here mm. so you know what's you've got to get underneath yeah underneath, that's right underneath. yeah um and focus your attention on that mm. and you can't do that without a capacity to be able to connect and see someone in not in the way that they're going to project to you but in the way that is real and resonates for them does that make sense so yeah. especially our young people are super super good at trying to give you an image of what they think you want them to be yeah. and they'll have an image for someone else like you know their gangster image for their mates maybe mm. and their good guy image for services and their angry hurt child image for you know a care you know they they have multiple hats and they can switch in and out and it's been incredibly confusing i'd be putting the wrong hat on for the wrong person but there is there is some real skill and i'll give you an example to explain what i mean where you can just sort of cut through all of this these sort of uh, flimsy versions and hit a fundamental truth about someone and they just it's like you turn a light on and they experience being seen and that's you know where true safety what we talked about but true healing can really really happen mm. and it's just a beautiful thing to be seen and accepted in this world especially when that's a very rare occurrence right yeah which is our kids so an example let me give you an example was when I was working as a sexual assault a clinician, um, it was very, very complex. A person with, uh, who 
He was now in her mid-teens and had never had treatment, but had had really horrific ex experiences um, in family and out of family. And um, I, I was like, oh, poor little girl, little girl, little girl. You know, because I was just so, I was so touched by her story and I just thought she deserved mm. to have some treatment. And she was sort of indicating she was willing. She was in a place once, once it settled down. So I met her the first time and it was just, you know, it was a typical teenager, crossed arms, whatever, you know, not interested, you know, and I was like, and I was super keen. I mean, I was like, oh, please, please let me be your therapist. I really want to, you know, I was like, you know, she must have thought, oh God, I've got an idiot here. <laughs> and, you know, she was like, she was really, uh, I, I would say she was somebody, she was projecting, I'm not going to invest in you because you're all, rubbish adults are rubbish people are rubbish why would i give you the time of day mm. um and i worked incredibly hard and how i tried to hook her in was like i just sort of said and i was just working desperately i just said look you know what i can offer you is a place to talk through anything that you want to talk through so that it's your space to make sense of things that you need to make sense of <laughs> and then um I had to cut it, we had to end it, and I said, do you want an appointment? And I fully expected her to say, nah. Yeah. And she said, yeah. And I was like, yes. I was happy, yeah, I know. I was happy dancing, I was, oh my God, but you know. And um, she was just like, nah. You know, like I was pathetic, you know, yeah. and I knew it, and I was okay with being pathetic. Totally fine, yeah. <laughs> and, um, and then her cousin was her carer at that time, and I felt like, you know, there was real, it was a real sort of pressure to be the victim there and not let me get to where I needed to do the work. So it took some to in and fro in. So I got this young lass in my therapeutic room. And I was just so excited. I'd done research. I'd looked at all the therapeutic treatment plans to work with, you know, the best. I'd set out a huge uh, structure about how I was going to deliver this therapy. And then I got in the room and that all went out the window. Mm. And I just sat down and I got... Mollus, if you probably the monosyllabic answers. How, how are you? I'm super happy. Hello, how are you? Yeah, how was your day at school? Because she didn't squeak. All right, what did you do? Uh, you know, it was really like, she, you know, she was really pedaling back and she was giving me nothing. Um, and some of the training I had was to repeat what people say. It gives you a bit of thinking time, but it's also that active listening. So, you know, she, she must have thought I was an idiot. Because it's <laughs> like, yeah, it was, you, were, you know, how's your day? All right. Oh, your day was all right. Your day was, you know, and, and so, you know, like, oh, what was good about it? Oh, nothing. Nothing was good about your day. <laughs> and I was like, and she must have thought, I've got some stupid here. And um, uh, think about that. And eventually, I got her talking about her home. And I said, you know, and she's like, I said, so what would you do at home? She says, well, I sit in my bedroom. I said, so you sit in your bedroom. You know, still repeating, <laughs> desperately trying to get in, you know. Sit in your bedroom, yeah. What do you do when you come out of your bedroom? chores and I thought I've got it my chores and she said yeah and I said um, so you do your chores what do you have to do because kids love feeling like you know they've got too many things to do in the home right yeah and she was telling me about that and then she was telling me about that she had to do the other kids chores as well and then you know and she was building up this picture for me um, but she was still really not engaging and I just said to her it's about 20 minutes into session a painful session it wasn't going anywhere that I wanted it to go and I just said you know, when I talk to you, I think about the fairy tale of Cinderella. And I imagine how lonely 
she was, on her own, doing the chores, nobody seeing her, nobody being, you know, pleased with her, nobody grateful to her. And, you know, your story reminds me of somebody else. Um, I just, and then she never shut up. She just told me everything. She opened up. I got to know all about this place and, and I, I, her plans for the future. She was such an intelligent girl. She was so bright. I, I, I feel such warmth and tenderness to her even now. Yeah. Because she showed me. Mm. You know, from a surly teenager, she just showed me who she was. Smart and focused. She had a goal. She gave she gave it me all. In fact, I couldn't get a question in, and I had research. I knew what I wanted to ask. I I had my plan, and I just let it go. And in supervision afterwards, I talked about it, and you know, what what we me and my supervisor came up with was that maybe no one had ever given her room to talk. And I just, you know, I I, I was determined to get a conversation. I got it, and then I just had to step back and let this young person talk to me about everything that was going on in her mind. Nothing about the abuse. Because hmm. that wasn't it that wasn't the focus of her attention. That wasn't the focus. That was going to help her and what she needed. It was about what was going on, where she wanted to live, who she wanted to live with, and how she was gonna move her life to a place that she wanted it to be. And um, I didn't see her again because she, she she achieved it. I backed her up. But she achieved it. She got the placement, she moved out, she got where she wanted. And I believe She's probably still doing that today. Mm. That's amazing, isn't it? And so it's not. I didn't use any, you know, any. I used empathy, mm. but I didn't use any kind of super cool new. I just was a person, mm. a caring person, keen to give this young to see this young person, mm. and to give her an opportunity to experience feeling understood. And that's empathy, right? It's yeah, it's humanity. And we don't do it. No, we don't. We don't do it enough. Do you think if you reflect upon yourself as a younger adult, like teenage, younger adult, you were quite an empathetic or a compassionate person to others? Well, I, um, I've still got my school friends, but I was a school, yes, I was a school counsellor, <laughs> unofficially. I mean, I'm a, I'm a story collector. And, you know, I'd love to write a novel one day. I you should. I know, right? My I would read it. Would you? Yep, absolutely. All right, one then. I've got one sale. Yeah, <laughs> two. <laughs> two sales. I would love to write it because I, it's about really, you know, thinking about people in a way, being really genuinely curious about people. Mm. And, and people feel it, right, don't they? Yeah. Yeah, you know? 100%. But where mm. I irritate people, I think, is trying to pull them off what I call a mouse wheel and slow them down to get into a conversation, and that's in, in work, you know, uh, in my work career, and but even on the couch. So people want to come in and sit down on your sofa in a private consult, and they're very focused on what they want to talk about, and I will open it up and say, you know, what's going to be helpful to discuss today? But if you step over where they feel safe or comfortable, they're, yeah, right, <laughs> yeah. you know? But I, I had to learn to be comfortable against the dance of agitation mm. to to pull them out of that space because they can they could they don't have to pay me they can talk to their friends that anybody as far as they want to go with that where's the joy in that where's the help in that mm. you gotta 
to create change. Mm. You've got to get people to sort of look at things in a different way and, and speak about things from a different perspective. And people can be very resistant, especially when they are stressed or tired or surviving um, mm. and not living. You know, they can just be really, you know, that's a, that's a skill. And, you know, I, I, felt the, I felt the wrath of that in the moment, but I've always been able to maintain a relationship of, so I can get some repair and I can get some explanation or context to why I do what I do or why I had to have that hard conversation. And then to, it's the, to bring them back and integrate the new thinking or learning or whatever. Mm. Because you create, you live in your head. Mm. Yeah. Whatever I say to you, <laughs> you know, you make sense of that. So you just change the story if you don't like it, if it activates, you know, unwanted emotions or thoughts. Just change the story. Mm. We've all got that power. It's very true. Mm. I'm just, um, I feel a little silent because I'm kind of processing so many of the different things yeah. that you're saying. But it's, I'm, I'm curious whether, it's funny that you're the school counsellor because one of the questions we used to have on the, like, season one, we call it, <laughs> um, is that uh, what was your aha moment? And like I'm, you know, without putting words in your mouth, funny that you said you were the school counselor, but some of the things that I've noticed like themes through the talking to people, because, you know, we have um, like both Nat and I obviously have lots of relationships with people um, that we work with and we know about them and, you know, that sort of thing. But it's taking opportunity like this where you actually get to delve a little further. There's so many themes that run through the people we've spoken to, almost everybody had a job as soon as they could. Yeah. Even earlier, if it was like those Mickey Mouse jobs, you know, like delivering the paper for cash and stuff. Like the delivering people's meds. Delivering is, people's um, meds has come up a I'm few still times, like back that. in the day. Yeah. Um, yeah, like lovely. elderly people, their meds, but like young, like, like a paper round, doing but, it. Yeah. How gorgeous. Yeah. Um, yeah. Hey. But also the, and a lot of people had, uh, bef- like maybe while they were studying or in that intermediate between school and, and getting into their career work, they worked in hospitality and retail. And so many of these things, it's like for me, it's like work ethic, relationship building, working with people, talking to people. Networking. Networking, like all that sort of stuff is so many of the different themes that have come up. And just as you're hearing, because um, I mean, I've talked about it and I don't want to beat the same drum, but I've talked about it a few times on the podcast, the, the difference of or the, the balance between, and I know we chatted about it earlier, but difference between experience and qualification yeah like you know you can't teach a lot of things and like you can't teach that ability to just be like empathetic just be but to be empathetic to sit with someone to um like it's like you can't teach gut instinct no and it's like i just was sort of reflecting before when you talked about like having almost like that ability to just know like you know that there's there's something there that and then to have the skills, because there's definitely skills to um, what you do, to then open that up. Like identifying it's one thing and to be able to the skills to um, to open it up, it's another thing. It's just, yeah, it's, it's just an interesting reflection. Um, you, you've talked a bit about um, the sexual assault counselling. Um, was that uh, one of the first sort of areas that you moved into or was it, later in your career or when did 
Yeah, I didn't do very good, did I, on the old... Uh, no, that's okay. <laughs> got sidetracked into story, which... No, that's great. Oh, I forgot we were even doing that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we, yeah. Don't even worry no, about No, no, that's fine. We don't yeah. have to go through, you know, yeah, we're not yeah. going to go through your no. resume, but... I think family violence mm. was always an area that I've had an understanding and a comfortableness in working in. So we back in the UK, um, law... So I was a legal secretary doing a law degree at Nottingham University. Uh, so much fancy other than universities. Oh, yeah, <laughs> it was great. I loved that so decade in Nottingham. It was so much fun, you know, because you've got you've got that small town. Well, it's not your small town, but it's a UK small town vibe. <laughs> it's a city, mm. but you've got great pubs. You've got great, you know, it, for a twenty-year-old. And I was, um, I'm more of a country girl than a city girl. Like my sister and my brother went to live in London. Um, but London terrified me. I can remember the first time I went and got off the train and seeing the young people sitting outside the train stations. I can remember this one um, girl just had a jacket on and bare legs. And this is London, mm. freezing. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of homelessness that I, it just terrified. And I think, again, that sensitivity, that empathy. Mm. I was described as highly strong, too sensitive, you're too sensitive. You know, you know the, these might be themes to think about, but they were the messages for me growing mm. up, you know stiff upper lip in the UK, you know, emotions were kind of like, you know, the enemies. And I was uh, evocative. Mm. <laughs> you know, I could bring out emotion in other people, which made people feel uncomfortable when uh, it was a society about stiff upper lip and mm. children should be seen and not heard. And, you know, and, uh, you know, but the, the saving grace on that was I could, you know, get people to laugh and, you know, get people to talk. But yeah, I was, I suited more Irish uh, kind of uh, community than the English. And I, I feel more Irish mm -hmm. than English, mm. very much so. And I feel, I feel like sometimes with the family violence, I have this row of strong Irish women <laughs> who are oppressed by religion and the culture in, you know, Catholic Ireland. You know, if your husband died, there was no pension. Well, you know, the man got the widow pension. The man got, oh, you know, really? it, it was wow. Catholicism mm. is um, um, how it played out in families and how it played out in for women in Ireland. Like my nanny, my nanny story is a great story. Like, like my nanny was a handsome woman. People say I, I look at like my nanny. I'm like, oh, handsome. Like my mom's go gorgeous. Like, oh, I'm, I'm just handsome. But you know, she was this big, tall woman, and she like. She's fierce out there, and she'd be making the sour. I mean, she was just a force, and I, I loved my nanny, right? And she, um, she had. She, it was then they groomed you to go into service, so they would go into service for the wealthy, like mm. you know, a bit of Downton Abbey kind of thing. Yeah, right. And nanny was in service, uh, but she had two kids out of wedlock when she was little. Now I don't know whether these kids were about her being raped whether it was consent she was certainly wouldn't have been exposed to sexual education she wouldn't have had much of a choice she wouldn't have known she got pregnant the nuns took her babies off her um, and then no good man could marry her mm. i mean that was it you know and that, yeah right mm. right really um of course they can you know do, do yeah and it, and it makes them <laughs> sexier mm. but women you know shame on you you've you hussy you, you, you you're not for a decent person. So, but I, this is what I love about my, and I do think I've got a lot of this Irish sass in me, um, 
I laughed once that somebody called me a, a, a badass, but they said my accent makes me not very badass. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, well, I, I want to be a badass. But I do think there's a, a lot of Irish sass. And Nanny, what Nanny did was, even she, those two kids, she got them back. Really? When Tony turned six, she got she got them back, and they became part of the family. Nan's got, I think there's eleven in them, and they, you know they're really tight knit. And the women in this Irish family, I've got to tell you, force to be reckoned with, mm. big, powerful, colourful, wonderful women. Not educated, but the backbone in the family, you know, they just and the backbone for each other, like the the sisterhood. Mm. Mm. It's a really important thing for me. Yeah. Um, because I was raising it, like mom's cousins were always like the, you know, it's just always lots of noise. And I can remember in the UK getting bags of clothes over, sent over from Ireland, and it'd be on the table. I wasn't that impressed because my big sister got the first dibs. <laughs> but do you know what I mean? It was just this sort of community that's really important, right? In, mm. in terms of if we're forming a belonging. So I felt very part. I've, you know, did the Irish dancing. Did the, I love Irish dancing. Oh. Well, when I'm drunk, <laughs> I'm, I tend to, New Year's Eve, I tend to just get a bit of a Michael Flatley on me and do a little <laughs> bit of a few jigs. We had it known we could have wound up Claire. <laughs> you might see me doing it across. Yeah. <laughs> Standing on one day, who knows? That's Claire. I'll join That's Claire doing the, the jig. But yeah, all of that stuff, raising it, the priest getting drunk at the Irish club, you know, and all of that, Helen Damfire, that was into me in these Irish women and mm. I feel sometimes ha that's got me here mm. and talking about family violence and talking about oppression and talking about uh, women's rights um, in a loving way to men mm. you know because most men are brilliant yeah and sweet and it's just a few that have uh, not been raised in a way that met their needs you know mm. and, and so this real fear of rejection means exerting extra control it's just absolutely not okay mm. but I, I i think we've got to get brave about getting in there and offering relationship advice mm. for the women who want to stay mm. you know in those yeah. relationships it's a really hard conversation that conversation uh well yeah like around family violence and men committing family violence against women for men to listen to yes mm. yeah like you know i find it difficult i've had this conversation with my wife before and it's a, I can't really know where to start or, or what even my point is, but yeah, it's, it's, I, I sometimes feel like, um, some people, I'm not even talking about a specific person, but when someone is talking about violence against women, that they sort of blame all men for this, yes. for, for, for violence against women. And I sometimes feel like I want to say like, Hey, just letting you know, like, we don't really like it either. Yeah. Sorry. I don't even say we don't really like it. We don't like it either. But, you know, people, uh, I, I feel like, yeah, I don't know. Do you feel like you can't have a, an opinion? Like, I, do you feel like your opinion's dampened because you are male? Yeah, I think so. Like, yeah, I feel like if I was to sort of be public about it, I mean, I'm talking about it on a podcast now. <laughs> but if I was, da, 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 da. Yeah, like, it's difficult to, have, to sort of, yeah, push back. Mm. Not push back because it's. But it's one of those things where uh, there's no getting around it. Like men are killing women. Mm. But um, I like I felt like I've wanted to say, um, you know, like I don't think that um, like a, a man that's killed a woman has like 
like been at the pub with his buddies the day before and talked about it and like his his male friends haven't done anything about it you know like i feel like that sometimes is missed or like the perception is that like we might joke about like as as all the lads get together and joke about some of these really dark things like that doesn't happen i don't know i feel like i'm um no, I think you're making a lot of sense. Am I? Got, I? Oh, yeah, gosh. no, I've got two sons and I've <laughs> really... And I've, I've, I've tried to talk about this at schools and I've tried to understand, no, I love a period drama and, it, and it's so good now because they're bringing modern mm. twists into the period dramas. So they're talking about, you know, they're showing the women in the period dramas tackling their oppression. It's mm. fantastic how mm. clever it's done, but... You think back in those days, mm. women, you know, might only eat or live if a man married them. Mm. They've got no means of uh, income other than marriage. So their looks and their reputation or everything. Well, you know, like I looked, you know, you've got to sort of break the circuit of these thinking. You've got to, because it just goes on and on and on. We don't think about it. It just becomes uh, some kind of truth. So I like going in and, in and tackling these things and saying, you know what, that might have been then, but you know, you don't need to worry about your looks anymore because you don't need a man. You can go out and earn uh, your own income. Uh, you, you know, because mm. I think we've got to actually physically say it, that which is, which is about trauma, right? With trauma, you, you've got to remind someone actually, you know, that was awful, but you're alive. Mm. You're okay, you made it because the brain needs this the brain needs to hear this you know I, I studied this with Rob Gordon in a in a crisis incident stress management we have firefights or people okay. having these you know the brain can get sort of what would you say on a computer if it sort of sort of freezes and gets locked and so it becomes the truth mm. you've got to move the brain on mm. so you you physically in that kind of training you physically have to say you're okay yeah you're alive you're safe, um, and the brain can hear it then and process and, and sort of reboot. It's a bit of a reboot. Yeah. Otherwise, people just sort of um, the, the brain's a very very delicate piece of machinery. So I feel like with that, society as a whole has got to understand. You know. Mm. Yeah. Who's that one that just did all? Who died in this prison cell? Jeffrey Epstein. Yeah. Mm. Another classic mm. um, white privileged male. Where, with too much power and he lied oh. to get his power right yeah and very then, deceptive man yeah right um i lied about his claws didn't he to yeah. walk into a job yeah he built this you know it never it was never enough nothing was enough for him mm. you know so there's a hole here mm. mm. mommy didn't love him either or something like that but do you know what i mean like he, nothing was enough and, and it's like again that debauchery that pain of others just gives them a sense of that emptiness being filled for a moment. But these are people with a mental disorder. Mm. They're not just men, and there are women, mm. but we've got to stop thinking about them from a gender perspective, mm. you know, and look at them from, you know, maybe, that's Humans. not, what no yeah, right, from the human. This isn't what normal, decent people do. Yeah. This isn't a behavior that normal, decent, there is something there if they're doing that that suggests ah there's you know they're not working properly you know there's some kind of disorder there mm. in their thinking in their emoting in their processing mm. and pull it away from yeah. a gender debate really 
But I don't want to criminalise mental disorders either. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But we've got to do better. How we talk about it, mm. how we manage it, how we as a community wrap around our mm. vulnerable. Um, because we just kind of push them out. Oh, you yeah. I'm going to put you out there. Out of sight, out of mind. Yeah, right. Oh, you know, you, what does that feel like? That's not really helpful, is it? No. <laughs> you know, that's not going to make the problem go away, is it? Mm-mm. But we say, oh, no, you, you don't fit. Out you go. Out you go. And then we've got these marginalized communities mm. who already feel very lonely before they got pushed out. Um, I think we just got to do better. Yeah. As a human race. Yeah. Um, kind of failing. I was about to say while talking about vulnerable, do you think having those conversations is a vulnerability? For me to have it? Yeah. For, as in, uh, do you mean like for me Because like if be... I think about you from a, mm. from my perspective as like, now we're just digging apart your <laughs> No, no, I don't mind talking statement. about it though because it might, yeah, it's fine. I think it sparks conversations. I think yeah, it's a really good point. Like talking. I've got about... 48 high school friends that would be like, well, I don't beat my partner, you know, yeah. oh, but it's all men. And I think the constant conversation that I have is, no, it isn't all men. And there are really wonderful mm. men out there. But yes. um, unfortunately, just like there's really wonderful women out there, but unfortunately we live in a world where there's some pretty nasty people yeah. where that occurs. Um, but I normally ap- approach them in the conversation of why does that offend you? And then sort of pick it apart from their sort of values and beliefs of where they put themselves into society. But yeah. I think if I, like, if I was just a random person that didn't um, know that about you, Josh, like, I would think you work in the field, like, you would be someone that could have an educated opinion on that. So I guess I wonder, because if, if you feel that way, mm. I'm sure that there is hundreds of other males that feel that way. Mm. And I think probably a hundred beautiful men that it would be willing to, you know, that would step in if there was something that they saw that would say something, yeah. you know. Mm. So I think, yeah, that, that's what I'm trying to figure out, I guess, for potentially people listening that are like, yeah, Josh, I feel that way too. And like, and and I get it because like I've been in conversations before, particularly around, you know, family violence where I've um, had to advocate for someone who wanted to stay, Yeah. you mm. know, and, and that's okay as well because yeah. that's their decision. That's mm. right. But but you, you, I could, you know, I was still uncomfortable with parts of that, Um. So I guess, yeah, that's what I, I was asking. Do you think it's a vulnerability thing? What are you, yeah, sorry. <laughs> no, that's all right. I think, uh, I think, I don't, I don't know if I fully answer you, understand your question. Are you saying, is it a vulnerability thing for me to, to say sort of? Like, do you, I think where I'm now. trying, no, totally fine. I've not explained it very well. I think what I mean in that is, is that being too vulnerable for you to put yourself in a space to be, potentially persecuted by others as a male for having an opinion. Yeah, yeah. I think if I was to, like, say what I... Well, it's ironic that I've said something because yeah. I just said I wouldn't be... I don't know how comfortable I'll be to say it publicly, but I'm saying it publicly. Mm-hmm. I think the difficulty is that if I was to say something like I feel like... So if I said I feel like when people say, or, um, you know, like uh, men need to do better or yeah. um, men are killing women... And if I was to say something like that's a generalization or mm. it's not all men or something that that I'd just be a target, I'd get sort of shot yeah. down really quickly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But my point is is that I, I would want people who have that opinion to know that men also and I obviously I can't speak for all men and we know that 
men kill, uh, you know, that we've got this issue at the moment, or we've had an issue for probably forever, that men are more likely to kill women than women are to kill men, or there's an issue with family violence and violence against women, uh, like that I would want people who are sort of in that, advocating in that space to know that as a man, and I can speak from my friends, mm. um, that we also don't condone violence against women and yeah. Yeah. Do you know what I'm trying to yeah, say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just I feel like that that gets thrown out there a little too off, like a little, like just the generalization is yes a bit flippant. But I don't know. I feel like so even now I'm being reserved because I feel like someone will get you're worried you're going to say the wrong thing. Yeah. 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 Definitely. Mm. Mm. I think for me it's the generalization theme because I think as a society um, we do generalize. Yeah. So you think about it's you know habit. you know. Um, you could just think about it's really hard to say this isn't it but let's just say i'm half irish and say something happened where a news article came on where the an irish gypsy was going around ripping old grannies off by saying they come and come and fix your roof madam but you have to give me a grand up front so i can go and buy the materials and then they never go back mm. right so if we were in a community where suddenly you would start to hear some, maybe potentially, some mutterings about Irish people not being good people, mm-hmm. yeah. right? On the on the behaviour of one or two or a minority, mm. and and that's I think you know a really uh, really kind of naive example mm. to try because it's a complex issue, isn't it? Mm. But as a society, we do this generalisation thing. Mm. And we do it with well, so many things. Like I think the ex- the best example, and I hope it's not. I'm going to put a trigger warning at the very start of the episode for people before they even start listening to our conversation. <clears throat> but the there was the recent incident up in the northern suburbs, the death of the the mother and three yes. children, and it's alleged that the police roughed up the the husband and father on the way to the police station for him to be interviewed because they understandably assumed or generalized that he had killed his wife and children. Mm. And it turns out that for however it went down, and I don't know, that the mother had killed the children and then I think, well, killed herself. But, you know, I think the first thought for everybody was, and and me too, 100%, the first thing, when I heard that, I was like, oh, what's he done here? Like, why, you know? But then we find out that it was it was the mum and the um, that it was the mum, which is awful. Mm. But you're right. But you just go straight to the the, the old mate did it. Yeah, and I think it's hard because I think part of us is the statistics show that dad is more likely nine out of ten times to be yeah, right? the perpetrator there. Mm. But I think as a society, I think there's certain particulars around what we're fed, and and. I mean, like the information we're fed and, and how we uh, digest that information. And we do live with... Are you laughing? Because I, I said digest. Because it would be funny if there's like some conspiracy theory that the food's got like stuff in it. That's like... I bet there's someone out There'd there. There'd be that, someone somewhere. Someone I found there. a TikTok the other day about no birds are real. They're all um, drones. <laughs> And they're all watching us. Anyway, moving on. There's lots of, I don't know how much you pay attention to like like conspiracy theories, but there's conspiracy theories for everything at the moment. There is, there is. Um, But I think the way in which we're fed information, I think, Mm -hmm. you know, for a less controversial or less sort of triggering 
um, sort of example that I can think of that I've experienced is when I was at uni, one of the assignments um, we had to do was at the time they brought in the new laws. For you red pea plates for a year and then you were green pea plates for two years. While you were a red pea plater at the time, you couldn't have more than one uh, passenger under the age of 21 in your vehicle unless they were your relative um, and the rest had to be over 21. Um, and so that law came into being and you had like passenger restrictions and whatever. Um, so when that law came in, I was at Union. So I did an assignment on because there was these big double page spreads in the Herald Sun that all all pea platers were just fucking hoons driving around doing yeah. burnouts, getting their cars impounded, getting in car accidents, driving with overloaded cars, drunk on drugs, like absolute hooligans. And I was like, that's not me. And yeah. still to this day, I'm 29 years old. I have not had any traffic infringements. And I, for me, that fucking hurt. Like I yeah. was pissed off that I just got my license, but I knew that statistically I would be targeted on the road mm. just because of my age, because there were some people within my demographic that did the That's wrong right. thing. That's right. And they spoke for all of us. And I didn't think that was fair. Mm. Um, so I think, you know, and they, I ended up writing my assignment on it and, and speaking about how it's not fair to just overgeneralize. And unfortunately, as a society, we do overgeneralize. Oh, we do too. Because it's easy. Mm. And it's because we're lazy because then yeah. you could bring it back and think about the, the young vulnerable kids or the marginalised communities, the people that are disenfranchised mm. from healthy society. Mm. And most of them are in prison. Mm. We yeah. know that, don't we? Yeah. Um, and I just realised we're having a white privilege conversation. We are. Because imagine if you're black. Yeah. So not just a pee plater. You could just be, you could be right. driving forever yeah. and uh, you might still get pulled over Absolutely. just because you're black. So it's exactly you know, right. I to think about, right? Yeah. Like me too. And yeah. I was like, that's, and I was like, oh yeah. doesn't have to be a piece. It could be because of your skin color. Yeah. But say mm. crimes can say somebody, you know, saw a theft or yeah. so crime mm. and you've got, um, two 14 year olds, one in school and one in care. Mm. Yeah. Who's going to get remanded. <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, you know, another thing is to observe how police talk to people, to kids in care. Oh, yeah. Or that you know, like mm. having worked at a, you know in a police station in an MDC, mm. really you know not not my guys they were brilliant, but really noticeable mm. that you know when if a kid came in with its mom and dad or a kid came in with a professional, how there was just a di it's just a different level of mm -hmm. rights, mm. and how can that be fair? So this you know generalization is a pain in the ass, and we all sort of wear it whether it's by being a man that runs and wants to combat family violence. Or being a young person, want to talk about road safety. Mm. But you know, for our marginalised communities, you know, and that is our Aboriginal Torres Strait, and it is our coal communities, um, it is our disenfranchised kids that have got no, you know, are in care. Mm. They've got everything lumped at them. Mm. You know, we've got those categories, but they've just got, they've just got, a, yeah, they're, they're walking around with a target, aren't they? What chance have they got to be believed? What chance have they got to get a compassionate, supportive perspective? That they are they are swimming upstream, mm. and I you know I I don't quite know how we got there as a mm. society. You know I I sometimes think our dogs and cats who are needing rehoming get more commercials and publicity and mm. charity than our children like in. In the UK, they have a, well, in Shire that I work, they have a three-strike rule. So they call it parallel planning. So a child can get uh, three chances 
you know, for the parents to do the right thing and do whatever they need to do. Um, otherwise, it's strike three if they're failing their uh, safety plans or their interventions, um, the child's put in permanent care. Three strikes rule. And the theory and the idea around that is that the pain, children have been bounced, 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 bounced mm. in, bounced out. You know, we know, mm. you know, kids can have. Um, I, I was talking to someone the other day about a kid who had, um, that I'd worked with a long time ago, who had never had a birthday, never had a birthday with the same adult and in the same house. And that's not an uncommon story, right? Mm. It's not an uncommon story. Yeah. And you, know, you talk about, I've been talking about my generational stories. Mm. Imagine that. Mm. How would you feel about, you know, when you're going through that teenage stage of individuation, working out who you are and who you are with other? Mm. You've never had a birthday. And such a monumental part of your development as well. Thanks, Josh. Celebration of your life. Nobody's celebrating you. No, not that you're on this planet and you belong to mm. them. That's what a birthday means, mm. really, right? Mm. And to have no adult uh, and no consistent home to do that. What? I think. Oh, sorry. I should say, I just, I just, I just get caught up in these musings of mine where I think, well, we don't even treat our animals like that. So why are we treating our children like that? You know, mm. why? Are, why isn't the community know there's these That's kids? That's the thing. I don't think they know. And at what I was gonna, um, I, I just wanted to highlight. You made a point before that about how, how many placements kids might have when they're in care. And it's quite the opposite. If I had a, like, I, I've recently had a young person tell me that they've only been in two residential placements for the whole time in resi care. And I was like, <gasps> what? Two? Mm. That's sick. That's yeah. good. Yeah. Wow. How good is that? Yeah. It's like, that never happens, yeah. you know? When you're thinking of, you've got kids that have had 40 placements, you know? Mm. You've had kids that, that 40 placements might have been before they were 15. Yeah. And I think it, it's a, re a really big point that I just wanted to highlight because mm. I know that there's a lot of people that do listen that are from the Facebook group and, you know, it's a pretty sort of common thing for people to come out of study and go straight into residential care work. Something to keep in mind is that, you know, that kid that you might think's a little shit who annoys you on shift, yeah. you know, or your first shift, you know, they're a bit testing. They're testing you because you're probably the 10,000th worker that yeah. has sat in front of them. Yeah. That might be the 90th home they've been placed in involuntary after they've been ripped away from their parents, whether that is something that they were in agreement with or not. And, and, you know, the care that they've been provided their whole life might have been, we know is generally pretty substandard. Yeah. So I think it's, it's just a point I want to highlight for people that are potentially listening that do work in resi or that are thinking about going into resi, do that knowing your cohort, know, your, know the demographic in which you're going to be working and be aware of, the journey they may ha have had to have participated in mm. before you are there standing there right in front of them yeah. and you just think they're that shitty kid. I totally agree with that and I would even add to that. Those behaviours, that the swearing, the violent language, the violent behaviours, mm. they were there to keep them alive yeah. in, what, in those environments. Survival. Just because you've changed the environment they can't let go of those behaviours. They don't know how to behave in a safe environment. They only know how to behave when they're, you know, in an abusive, dangerous environment. And yet we just expect to switch to go on, oh, you're safe now, now can you completely change your personality? Yeah. Um, that takes a long time and a lot of trust um, and a lot of consistency around safety, which 
with those multiple, multiple placements, yeah. which somebody, you know, decides upon, often without really understanding the young person's story mm. or knowing anything about that. It's a quick fix of this group of kids aren't working together. We're going to move this one out or, mm. you know what I mean? Or sometimes not even explain to the young person. Yes. Like the amount of times I've had that conversation with a young mm-hmm. person and being like, dude, what happened? Like, how come you moved? Yeah. Mm. Don't know. Yeah. No one's spoken to me. Isn't that cruel? Yeah. Isn't that a really cruel mm. thing to do to someone? Yeah. Like, you know, to just change someone, pull them out, to say, you know, you've got to work relationships. So they're, they're getting all these messages, you're safe, we're going to take care of you, we care about you, we care about you. Oh, your, your black bin line is, you know, packed. Mm. Um, okay, can you get in the car? We're going somewhere new. Mm. Mm. And you think, why? Mm. And you would have to think, it's my it's fault. Me. I've done something. I'm bad. I don't deserve this. And each time you're going to shut down, aren't you? Yeah. And it's so much harder. So by the time we get mid to late teens, you know, they don't want to, they're, they're not engaged in any support services and the resi workers carry the whole thing mm. because, you know, they don't want counselling. They're over that. Mm. And why, why would I understand that too? Because just by going to counselling, you're kind of admitting you're the problem. Mm. It's you. And like, really, at that stage of individuation, that's just too hard, right? Yeah. Why would you want to do that? Mm. It's easier to just go out and forget your problems and be with other people like you mm. nobody wants. Yeah, I was about to say, by that time, that teenage years, they've set up their own network, they've set up yeah. everything that they need. It's even like how you see like a lot of the, the kids that are in out-of-home care, like they've always got like a bag with them. They've always got, whether it's small or big, like they're always prepared. In, That's right. You know, they're prepared for something. Like even though it might not go down, they're sort of, they're That's always... That's how I know when I'm working with a kid in out-of-home mm. care that they feel safe. If they get in the car without a bag, I'm like, oh, mm. right. Wow. Mm. So, yeah. so symbolic, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. You know, like, I, like, I think about that. I think about tortoise, but it's like, I mm. am everything. I am alone. There's nothing here mm. for me. You know, or that I've got to, I've got to provide for me because no one cares about me. Mm. So this is my world. And it's tiny, isn't it? Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's just, it's just incredibly sad mm. that we've got this happening. It's funny what you said before, uh, the musings of your mind, and I'm, I think we're probably similar in that way. I sometimes picture, because I've said this to people, because, yeah, like when you talk about residential care, normally it's like a Sunday barbecue thing, or what do you yeah. do for a job? And, yeah. you know, and it was when I was doing out-of-home care case management, I had to explain what all that meant, mm. which, you know, normally what I would I would say was, um, like, I'm a case manager, I, I sort of look after, um, like, the, the, the team of people that, look after young people who live in residential units that and, uh, and then that would be you know you know when kids get taken away from their parents you know and that because you dumb it down for people just to cut to the chase mm. and they live in you know homes together like three or four kids and that's staffed by people and you start you can see people's minds exploding yeah i'm like idea. you know like a group home they're like yeah. group homes still yeah. exist i'm yeah. like yeah, yeah. I was like, there's, there's probably one in your suburb like, yeah you know probably I mean? one a like, block away probably yeah they're everywhere blah blah, blah. but i sometimes wonder I, I I wish that I could go back to when they wrote the proposal for the idea of residential care homes and because it wouldn't have been the machine that we now work in. Right. It would have been more idyllic, idyllic. It would have probably been more that, yeah, that, that, they, that the kids would have longer-term placements there and it would be more stable. And I, I feel like, I mean... 
that should that would have been the proposal, right? Because you're not going to write a proposal for this system that doesn't work properly well, and is you. overcrowded. Oh. So that's yeah. Can, so my, I'll actually, finish with my point yeah, though. I'll, it is. I'll tell you know, you I, what. Do you think that it's just kind of got out of control and unmanageable now? Was the last sort of part to that? Yeah. So I work with somebody nearly as old as me, but not quite. Um, who was in? Who was one? Her first job in uni was in one of the homes when yeah. it was a new, brand new model. So her job was to sleep in the home. So she was a soul worker. She had, and this was, I think it was in Sunshine. She had three kids, Sunshine or St. Kilda. Good as mine, I suppose. She had three kids in the home, and she, the shift was a week on, week off. And she was in there. She did, they paid her eight till five, but she slept there. They didn't pay her. Bastards. Which is why the models had to change again. Mm. And her job was to provide care. So she cooked, she cleaned, she made sure they got their medical appointments. So that's how it started. But of course, you know, that's not a viable model. I mean, the thinking behind that obviously was, she, you know, you've got a week in, week about, you've got a steady, you've got Mm. one person, they're kind of doing that sort of single parent role, I guess. Mm. You know, they're doing everything in a practical care nature. And, you know, they're there overnight. Um, I think she wasn't paid very well. But, yeah, that's how it started. Until five. Yeah. I am very, very sure there would have been issues before eight and after five in her home. Oh, and there was. Yeah. And she wasn't. But she she grew very attached. Mm. And so it was was easier to form a relationship. And I would imagine the children felt that it was more of a family home because they don't, they, these children are growing up without a construct of family. Mm. And what does that mean? I yeah. mean, that's just cruel in itself, right? right yeah. You've got to do better. But that's what they did. But it mm. because started out. my understanding, and I'm not sure when all of the transition changed, but I've, because when I worked at Parkville, I worked with people who had worked there from before it was Parkville and it was Tirana, mm. is what it was called. And it's had a million different names. But the, the narrative that I've heard is that what we know now is kids that are on a care by secretary order, which is that, that for people who don't know, um, is that their um, guardianship is completely by the, the department, of course. You know that. But we used to be called wards of the state. Yeah. And that in Tirana, which was the old Parkville, you would have wards of the state and kids on uh, either remand or sentenced all in the same place. Wow. Yeah. So as in... Kids in care living in custody. Well, living in the same facility as other as a, kids that right, are also yeah, in yeah, custody. Because yeah. I've heard about, I, I mean, I met this guy once who's doing a... But they've not committed a crime. That, that's my understanding. Yeah, unless I've misunderstood from the stories, but it was that almost like before resis happened and it kind of like, I guess, the idea of like an American orphanage. Or mm. naughty boy that, home. Yeah. Kind of yeah. They, at least well, for Melbourne. you see them. Like I even, not that long ago, I was driving through Heidelberg, which... Okay, a little bit ago, but not like within the last sort of 12 months. And there was this old building and it was like um, school for naughty girls, something, something. And I, I remember seeing it and being like, oh, that would have been an old group home. And I remember my partner being like, what? Mm. Oh, I because we obviously drove past all the time. And he just thought it was like a bit of a piss take. Yeah. And I was like, no, 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 that would have been mm. at yeah. some stage like, a naughty girls home where and they not, would have not so long ago yeah mm. probably 80s 70s 80s i don't know 90s. yeah yeah probably yeah that? well for them to sort of 
people. I'm trying to just picture their age and to work at Parkville and they did. Yeah, maybe. But I don't I don't know if that's exactly but that's my I understand it to be that they had the, the same time. Can you just imagine that, right? You are removed from your mum and dad mm. for your own safety by a magistrate and then you're put in yeah. a facility that houses you know, youth yeah. that have made choices and decisions to break the law. Yeah, that's right. And so they've got their that route mm. and you've got their from a protection perspective. Mm. If I'm correct, I, you know, I, I believe I am. That's always the narrative that I've understood. But I guess we, we're kind of, um, we've been chatting for a while and we it's, that's fine. But I think if we, we wanted to cover out of home care and I know that's something that's like passionate to you and a space that you're working in sort of more in this time in your career, I suppose, if we put it that way Bro- at the moment, broadly. broadly. Over all streams yeah, okay. now in my role, but um, it's a, I'm passionate about yeah, and reform. I guess, yeah, okay, mm. yeah. How, how, so, I mean, I don't know. I was about to say how it presently is is almost like too big of a thing to explain, but it's out of control in terms of that there's a lot of kids in out-of-home care. The system itself isn't functioning very well. And what we see is a lot of kids living in out-of-home care, bouncing between placements, um, not going to school, not really engaging in anything super overly pro-social. And I think the know, saddest part about say? it is that young people be- become a part of the system because they are victims. And I, I hate mm. using that word, but they become a part of the system or the system step in because mm. they are victims of something, whether that is violence, neglect, whatever that might be. Yeah. And then they are a part of the system mm. and then they become a victim of the system. Mm. I think that's the the cog for me. Yeah. Is that we're actually leaving them no better than we found them. And well, sometimes worse. Yeah. yeah. So for me, it, it, how I would say that is that they are removed um, through a process, a legal process that puts them on an order because it's deemed that the environment they were in uh, was harmful. And then they are put. It's like that, that, you know, that process is, you know, completed. And then there's a, there's, there's a sort of end. And then they go into this next process, which seems divorced. Mm. Because, mm. you know, and, and that process focuses on, we don't want these children to be hurt. We're gonna prove that they are being hurt. They are being hurt. Right, let's remove them. Line. Then mm. the next part of the process starts with, oh, we've got these kids. What? Where are they going to sleep? What are we going to do with them? And the focus of that is bed. Let's get a bed. We've got to get a bed. We've got to get a bed. We've got to get a bed. And often a lot of pressure is put on this. So you've got these two huge uh, machines that are making huge, you know, really a decision that a child will never recover from. In, in we've talked about recovery, but a decision that becomes a massive part, an impactful part, a life-changing experience being removed, mm. right? And then end, mm. <laughs> shove it over here, your problem. Mm. And I feel that's, um, that's a massive part of the problem because if that part of the legal system had then the burden or some kind of oversight mm. to see where that child ended mm. up. Their trajectory. Yeah and, yeah, and still and still manage the safety mm. in the same rigor 
mm. that they made the decisions yeah. there, we would have a completely child, different care system, right? Absolutely. Child protection would remove the child from their own care. Well, you know, I yeah. mean, like you know. if you're going to give the parents, yeah. which I'm sure has happened before, choices. Yeah, they give them back. Like not give them back. It sounds terrible, <laughs> but they but there's like a yeah, I don't know. There's like a level a, of risk that yeah. if they can't mitigate, right? I don't know. But my 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 kind of joke was that if you you like the I shouldn't say child protection, but essentially I suppose it is child protection. But and I guess the point is we're not slagging off child protection workers or residential care workers. It's it's the system itself. Mm. It's the court. It's it's the court that makes the decision, not child protection. Mm. Yes, that's a good point. Yeah. Well, how many times do we have? You know, we've got friends that work at CP or th- yeah, that we know. How many yeah. times do they go, oh, yeah, my recommendation got changed and I don't yeah. even agree with this? Yeah. yeah. My my joke, Sorry. which is not a joke, no, 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 <laughs> is, you know, if we, if we would, if, if the system would give a parent or, um, yeah, a parent, say, five opportunities, yeah. you know, we'd, we certainly give the, the out-of-home care system way more than five yeah, opportunities do. to Absolutely. fuck something up. They're yeah, just yeah. divorced, right? Yeah. They're just, and it, and it's so it's to us it seems ludicrous that this assessment and this rigor is going on through the legal system, mm. and the law, the Child, Youth, and Families Act, and all, all of the acts are applied, uh, you know, in a very tangible way mm. there, but yeah. So you know mm. what happens here because. You know, we know drug and alcohol is something that can be introduced into a young person's life. What's going, Resi? We know there's risks. You just pull a forensic lens over it, mm. and we think about you know children adapting to their environment to survive. You know, and if in their environment they've got young people, a bit like how you were describing Josh with the old Parkville, that are partaking in drug and alcohol, that are partaking in criminal behaviours, that are connected to pro-criminal. Um, groups you know what I mean and you're going as a new person into that environment and you need to make friends and you need to survive mm. and you need not to be so scared and terrified out of your head you are going to adapt to mm. follow the rules of those young people in that house that's mm. right um, you know we all know it right this yeah. is not a secret mm. so why is nothing changing where does the change need to happen for me yeah. i see it that and um i see the change needing to be happen to happen with early intervention with young people and families mm. do you do you where would you implement some change uh, uh, for me when you talk about that you know, so many stories come up but i remember talking to i went to a, a case conference as a a, 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 cons, um, a clinical consult clinical consult role and this child had been removed and put in the residential care system below the approved age of 10. So he'd, mm. he'd been he'd put in there with his uh, peers, his siblings. But he was probably went in there about age six. Mm-hmm. Um, and just, you know, 13 now. And, you know, uh, just his mum was distraught. She was deaf. She was in the care team lip reading. She was an amazing woman. And um, what she said was, you know, and I got it. If all the money that had gone into the care of her mm-hmm. child, and her brother was with her, um, had been provided to her in support, and I think this is your point, we would have had a better outcome. For, yeah. for she, she was overwhelmed. She couldn't manage him. She needed support. 
what she got was her child removed. Mm. You know, and if the support had been put in there, maybe that family would stay together. We know that kids should stay with their families, but we know that the environment in that family needs to change. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, there's lots of programs, but there isn't a lot of funding. Mm. I mean, you think about how much resi costs. I was just talking about. Oh, um, my I mean, right. Don't do the math on that. I yeah. know, like, mm. that's what I'm saying. They, the, mm. it, the, the state even creates an environment of poverty for the young person in its care. Like, mm. there is no, I, I can remember um, in, another, in a previous life, in another role, a care worker brought in a client for counselling. And, the, the, you know, the child was, like, a bit ambivalent about talking to me, and I offered the care worker to come in. And the child said that was okay, and that's okay with me. That made the child engage. That was fine. But something came up about you know, uh, you know, the child's life. So I'm just asking. I'm just building an alliance, but you know, asking about their life. And the care worker, the resi worker, started talking about oh, they get this pocket money. He's got he's got this game Xbox. You know, you know. And he was literally saying how lucky is this young person. You know, it's got more than my kids, and you know, <laughs> you know, it's like, oh my god, mm. because if you've been ripped from your family home and exposed to what that child, and, and then trying to find a way to survive in a residential care home with all the bigger kids there, or you know, would you feel lucky? You know, and and mm. here he is. I mean, and it, how do these kids make sense of how the adults perceive the situation that they're in, and how often is their voice? taken or their perspective taken and someone really sits down and says you know I, I suppose you know do you understand how, like you were saying that do you know how, how you ended up here and mm. how are you surviving mm. you know I, I, I've asked those questions I've been very fortunate in my career to have those conversations and in a really nice way and been told about gangster you know don't worry I'm gangster no one's going to touch me you know but what I hear is terror mm. yeah behind the gangster I hear I'm going to put this image that I'm bigger than I am hmm. in the hope that people just won't pulverize me, hurt me, you know, because this is terrifying. Mm. I've got no way to ground myself. I've got no one who I can process my experience with, who can sit me down and, and save me. This is it. Mm. And I've just got to, you know, get to bed at night and wake up the next day and find some way of getting through it. Mm. Mm. And this is kids. And this is 2021. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And things are getting, in my head, worse. Yeah. You know, I th I'm dealing more with uh, sexual violence. Mm. I'm dealing more with drug and alcohol um, coming into children's lives. Mm. Um, more crime. You know, we're not doing a great job. We're not doing a great job. But nobody seems to be... At where they need to be, and I presume that's Dan, the man. Mm. He's had COVID, you know, to deal with. So fair enough, Dan. But can you get back to this now? Mm. Mm. You know, you are a Labour government. I think they're renaming DHHS now, and they're breaking it up to a Child Youth Family Services Division, and they're, they're creating a new division. So maybe yeah. there is some reform coming. But you know, we've seen so many royal commissions. Oh, so many. How do you feel about the age being increased to 21 in the budget announcements? Yeah, well, again, you I mean about time? Is that is that still enough? 
what I didn't like about it, and I wonder if your perspective is different, when they were announcing it, they said the age of children in care will now be raised from 18 to 21 if they agree. Now, I don't think I've got one singular um, client that I've worked with that the age when they were doing leaving care planning was like, there's some that probably wanted to stay in Terezi because they were scared about independent living or um, maybe being on their own or something like that. But do you want to be under the care of DHS for another three years? Mm. I, and, and if that's what it's contingent on, if it's contingent on the young person agreeing, because well, then at that stage they're an adult, they've turned 18, so they're, they're, they're agreeing to their care. So if they're agreeing to stay in care until 21, I just don't know how much buy-in there will be. And I think that might be a bit of a loophole unless it's that is the age and we start leaving care planning at 18 instead. Yeah. And that's the way the system works. But it was just that that little word in there. I was like, oh, I don't like that being there. Yeah. And there's that bravado and the reality. Because mm-hmm. that's, you know, you know, I've got teenagers myself. So, you know, there's what they would want mm. and what is real. Because, mm. um, you know, they've got to have an income. And yeah, like you know, there's lots that can't wait to see the back. And I think there's kids that would want to stay in their and residential kids- unit, but they don't want to be under the care of DHHSCP anymore. Mm. I think the problem with this is that they, I think there's twofold. One is they've, when they've um, spruced the plan, they talk about it in, in more the context of young people that are in foster care, and when they've and I think the community think that it's for young that it's that they picture sorry people in foster care. So they're picturing a young person who who has a family like style environment that they've probably been with since they were twelve or thirteen or ten or whatever, and they're eighteen. And at, at point of eighteen, the payments or the their finance is then um, the responsibility of the family that to to pay for things. And now we're going to give that family uh, funding for another three years. Isn't that great? Yes, that is great. But how many kids are in... What's the percentage of kids in foster care versus out-of-home care when they turn 18? I'm guessing it's like... It's got like 20% of them are in foster care. Yeah. It can't be much more than 20%. Yeah. must be like 80% that are in out-of-home care. And that's the problem mm. that you're talking about. Mm. Like that's the that's the stuff that I feel like... Is it a, Like when we talk about the Sunday barbecue thing like I was talking about, people don't know what foster care is. No. Sorry, people don't know what residential care yeah. is. If you talk about foster care, oh, yeah, I get it. Yeah. That's we need right. more foster carers. Yeah, we do. <laughs> this is, there's yeah. some more that goes into mm. that, though. Yeah. We yeah. can't just create them. Yeah. Because, yeah, that's the, the tricky part. And placement matching. Yeah. Mm. Okay, so you think about that and you think about developmentally somebody at the age of 18 to 21 and what they'd be into, um, you know, uh, what, what they might... What their life would look like compared to a ten-year-old, which is that you know, and we know there's not beds. We know the beds haven't increased, and we know there's a lot of pressure, and we know that placement matching is thrown out the window mm. when a child needs a bed. So, my worry would be putting a young teenager into a you know an already uh, broken. So, so it, you know it's. There's just not enough beds, right? And we're moving them out. You know, really early 15, you start planning mm. your sort of exit care plan, you know, and you move them into these lead tenants and things like that. And 
trying independent schools. But then I think about children I know that um, who, who are very poorly, who are very vulnerable, um, and would really benefit, who built relationships with staff and call a residential home their home mm. and that community around it their home, mm. who would really, really benefit um, from just having a little bit more stability and a little bit longer because we know, you know, our teenagers aren't maturing. Like I, I left home um, 16 the first time, went back, 17 I got out. Mm. Um, my husband was 15, you know, so... You, you could move out earlier and start your independent life and you were, you were encouraged to um, in, you know, sort of working class families back in, you know, the UK and I'm sure it's in the same in this country too. But that's gone. That's gone, you know, it's hard to get your kids out. You know, mm. They, they want to stay because it's great. <laughs> yeah. That's it. Well, the reason why we plan, as you know, for, and, you know, this is probably yeah, interesting for people that are listening that are getting into it, but, you know, as it comes around to 16, we are planning for, um, leave, we are doing leaving care planning because you know that if you wait till it's too close to 18 or 18, that it's, you kind of get like that one shot at it, right? Mm. If there's 17.9, you've got three months because it's like literally as soon as that kid turns 18, like we're out, you know, mm. CP have a voluntary period of three months, blah, blah, blah. But like the, the work that, that I was doing and, um, yeah, like you'll start planning for leaving care at 16, trying to get them out and living independently at 16 because you know that they've got two years to make mistakes, but they'll have a care team to catch them and support them and we'll give it another try and another try. But if and there's you... also more options like housing yeah, at 18. Yeah. It's like here's your garbage bag full of belongings. This is ways. Yeah. In you go. Yeah. Ask oh, them for something. Yeah. <laughs> As yeah. opposed to okay, well that placement didn't work. Independent isn't for you. Let's look at lead tenant. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It's... And I've got no one. No, yeah. I've got no one. They're they're alone. The, I I wish I could find a way to convey the weight of the loneliness. Mm. And I, I, I just, you know, just imagine being in this world mm. as a young person and thinking that nobody cares whether you're alive or dead. Mm. Nobody cares. You know, like, that's just not easy mm. to find a way to integrate into your sense of self. Mm. That nobody cares whether you're alive. That, that, that it feels to me crushing for a child to walk around with as part of their truth you know like and yet we don't we don't come in at that point do we we don't come in we, we come in oh look you know you're a bit defiant we've got to address this defiance behavior you know <laughs> you know and then someone's in agony mm. ag psychological agony and we're just talking about no, you've got to talk with respect, you know. <laughs> it's inappropriate to swear. Yeah. You wouldn't believe it. He blew up and, you know, started yelling or something. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Do you know what I mean? We're just sort of like, uh, you know, no wonder that the relationships are hard because they, they must feel like this person, invisible, this person doesn't get me. They're just talking at me. I've done something wrong again. I'm tuning out. Mm. I'm tuning out. But maybe if we started with, Wow, you know, you know, I, I just don't, I can't even begin to understand what it must feel like 
for you to get out of bed and face your life every day. Mm. You just, you just, you know, I know you don't believe it, but to me, you just amaze me with your resilience and your strength and your will mm. to create a better life for yourself. Mm. You know, you, everything around you is making that difficult. I know, and I, I would like to be someone that doesn't, but you are just, just such an amazing young person and don't mm. ever forget it. Because mm. your life is hard. Your life is so hard. You just say it mm. to them, you know, right? And maybe if we start there, we then can get to, look, you're not really meant to talk to people like that mm. and you know, and you really can't hit them and can you please stop setting the unit on fire? Because <laughs> I think once you've got the rapport though, you can be pretty frank yeah. with your clients. That's oh, something yeah. I really respected about I, a long time ago. Yeah, a little bit ago. I did a training with Blue Knot. Yeah, they're um, great. They're fucking phenomenal. Yeah. Like if anybody's listening and you want any good training, yeah, they do. Um, the trainings that I've done with them were around um, vicarious trauma self-care practice um, and trauma-informed practice. Um, but, but like the facilitators I've had every time are just amazing. If you're looking anywhere that's credible, that does training, yeah. honestly, go look at Blue Knot there. And can't, I can't say great enough things about them. Um, but one of the exercises that they do, and, and look, I've done four trainings and I've done it in every training, this exercise. So I'm, I'm going to assume that they do it in every training. It's a bit of an um, icebreaker, um, like activity for people. But it was um, think about someone in your life that you really love that is a resilient, independent, amazing person. And so everybody's got this person in their, their mind. And they were like, oh, spit out characteristics of that person. I want, I want you to tell me all the positive characteristics. And so we wrote them down on the board and the board was bloody full. And then they said, now I want you to think of your young people. Would you describe them this way? And some of the things were, um, you know, just descriptive words that wouldn't necessarily, you wouldn't necessarily align with um, your young people. But then they flipped it in. But are your young people resilient? Yeah. Do you think they're hardworking? Yeah. You know, because if you think of, I might think, you know, Josh is hardworking, but then if I think of hardworking for a young person is different, you reframe that, they mm. are hardworking, yeah. they are resilient, they they are respectful and they might not show that in really overt ways, but they're really little ways. And I just really liked watching that exercise because I think that's something that I pride myself on is actually being quite accepting of my young people and being yeah. pretty empathetic of their stories and their situations. But it was actually really beautiful to see the room have that realisation because it wasn't just youth workers in there. It was, there was an anesthesiologist, there was a neurosurgeon, there was a midwife, there was all of these different um, sort of occupations that you don't necessarily um, um, do training with really. Like Mm. I I, I can't, it's the first time I've ever done training with a neuroscientist, neurosurgeon, sorry, and probably the last time I will. Um, But even for all of them to have the realisation that, yeah, that might not be the first person that popped into my mind. And even for me at the time, I was thinking of my sister. Yeah. And then I felt like an absolute fucking fool for not thinking of one of my young people. Yeah. But I think that's a really beautiful sentiment that they do. And I think it's a really good way that they switch people's thinking at the start of a training, particularly around the heavy sort of um, topics that they do talk about. Uh, I forgot my point around the icebreaker. I think it was just around reframing the way in which we look at young people and yeah. their strengths mm. and what we might, what, you know, we think of young people, um, what we might think of weaknesses, it can always be reframed. Like I think all young people are just the most amazing entrepreneurs. Mm. They just apply themselves in mm. 
alternative areas, <laughs> I would like to redirect them somewhere else. It's great mm. survival skills. Oh. Mm. And great resilience. That's if I right. was ever stuck on the street in a dark alley, I, I know who I'd want standing behind me that's right that's not any of my fucking friends yeah and humor there's yeah humor is you know such a big part of our children yeah um but i think as well it's important for them to hear Mm. that positive because all they've heard is the negative and in their head the Mm. script is Mm. so so negative so wherever you can genuinely flip that script Mm. and put in a word that they can integrate about themselves that they like about themselves, mm. you know, and, and they might not show you anything in that moment, mm. but it's the seed mm. that will eventually grow and mm. grow and, and grow. things. Yep, yeah, and like like we yeah. said before, like it might be that one thing that you say to a young person or a client or whoever you're working with that to you means nothing, but to them might be the world. And we've spoken before that we don't acknowledge when that happens mm. very well mm. as humans. Mm. But it, like it's happened to me even recently. I, I often say to young people thanks so much for spending time with me today. I really appreciate it. Or mm. I appreciate your time. Yeah. Mm. Uh, because I do. Because I'm who the fuck am I? They don't have to spend their time that's with right. me. Mm. And to sit in that space and be respectful and be engaging, that's a big thing. So yeah. I, I am really appreciative that they held that space with me. Mm. Um, and I like recently had a young person say to me, no one's ever told me they appreciate me. Mm. Yes. And it's not even a second thought to me. It's a yeah. throwaway comment at the end of appointment. And well, not throwaway. It's an intentional comment for me mm. because I genuinely do appreciate their time. But not something I would give a second thought to. Mm. I just mm. say it at the end of every appointment. Yeah. Mm. The same way I say, have a good weekend, stay safe. Mm. Um, but for that young person, she was like, no one's ever told me mm. that they've appreciated me. And that really meant a lot for me. Yeah. yeah. We do right. it systemically as well. Like, like, if you look at a referral form, it's like name, date of birth, list of concerns, like, uh, you know, um, trial protection history, mm. like, what, you know, there's obviously something going on in that young person's life that they're getting referred to, the, whatever it is, because it's going to be an AOD program, mental health program. Like, you're not referring them to, like, the happy service. Like, the, and it's just full of negative stuff. Care team meeting minutes, like, let's talk about their placement, let's talk about their house, um, their drug and alcohol, let's talk about, like, family stuff, like, at the very bottom, there's the strengths and like the strengths That's never section, out. and then we we breeze past it. Case notes, like very often, like we don't often, as a service or a system, write like overly positive case notes about people, no. the young people. Photos that get uploaded to Chris or whatever system you might use, probably like property damage or like something. Like, where's the photo of like when you took the kick go karting? Mm. Resis do it really well, I think. They celebrate yeah. young people really well. Yeah, they do great. lots of like life story work or life mm. books or, you know, they give them those sorts of things. But like systemically, we we don't, myself included, you know, probably because I just bought into the system of it. But like, yeah, we don't often um, reflect on young people in a, in a positive light with the, just some of the, the day-to-day stuff. Mm. There's, some, some, there's, so much room for there's it. something out there. I've done so much trauma training, but I think there is something that says for every uh, one positive thing, it'll, um, there's four negative things that will go in. Mm-hmm. Something about this sort of four to one, you know, like, so when, I, when I'm working with um, practitioners, I always say, make sure you deliberately say something, mm. you know, authentic, meaningful, positive, Mm. in every connection and everything to try and start to undo all that negative external and internal mm. messaging that's going on in that young person just take the time to put that into your yeah into your intervention planning 
every single time, mm. even if it's repetitive, mm. you know, and sort of steer away from, you know, something about their physical appearance because yeah. that's not, you know, where we want to go. Yeah. But just something that's, because how have their identities formed? You know, that's right. we as parents do that. Oh, mm. you're such a good boy. You're such a good girl. Yeah. Like I've got one at the moment, he's 16. He's all about uh, football and bodybuilding. So I, I could be b- working away and he'll come in and go, look at it. He did this today. Look at this, mom. Look at what am I looking at? This muscle. Look at this. Oh, it's so big. Oh, <laughs> mom, look at it. Look, at it. it's got a vein and everything. Oh, my God. You know, do you know yeah. what I mean? Like, yeah. Like, you know, and, and that's my, you know, he's so masculine. My eldest son is um, gay and uh, tiny, you know, very feminine you know, bougie, you know, Louis Vuitton and Dior and, you know, it's just the, like I've got these two extreme mm. boys, you yeah. know. And so one I'm going shopping and, oh, that outfit's fantastic. And, that, and the other one, oh, your muscles are so big, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. but, you know, heaps and heaps. And, he, and I, I sat down with my husband and I said, you know, I want us to deliberately, you know, program our boys to have a lot of self-worth, mm. to you know, to really understand those things about themselves. And if they like something, jump on the train with them and yeah. like it with them. You know, I don't care what it is, just make sure yeah. mm. so that they grow into the humans that they want the world mm. to see, that it's authentic, right? Do you know the American, he's a psychologist or something, super American, Rick Lavoy? Are you, are you familiar with him at all? I can't often like spruik, you know, like... Um, I don't even know what to call them, you know, academics. Like, that's not me. But anyway, I worked at a summer camp. I, I covered this off maybe in a previous conversation. I read this. I listened to the summer camp. Did you? I did. I enjoyed it. So if you didn't listen to it, this ties in so nicely, right? So there's he does this part of one of his presentations. His name's Rick Lavoie. And if you look up Rick Lavoie Poker Chips, it comes up. I don't know if you remember this, right? But he has this thing. It's about poker chips. And we all... We all play this game of life. I'm, I'm copying a lot of the things that he says, but he just says it so well. Okay. And we've all got a stack of poker chips, right? Mm-hmm. And some people have a lot. Like, we've all got a lot of poker chips, but some people don't have very many poker yeah. chips at all. Yeah. So a lot of our young people, they don't have very many poker chips. Even though they might be bluffing, you know, they're yeah. putting on the big show, they're probably holding very few poker chips. So when it t- comes time to gamble, some people are willing to bet a lot to be wrong and it doesn't matter because we have so many some people won't bet very many at all because they just need to hold those poker chips that they've got so closely because if they end up with none that's when you know he talks about you know young people joining gangs and committing crimes and yeah. turning to drug and alcohol and things like that but it's our responsibility as professionals but as a community to provide poker chips yeah. to people whenever we can yeah. yeah and then he talks about the island of competence which is where you're talking about get on that train with them yeah and he's and he talks about uh and it's real funny because it's super American, but he's, he says, um, he's like, he goes, if your son is only good at using a Phillips head screwdriver, then before he gets home from school that day, you loosen every damn screw in the house. <laughs> and when he gets home, you hand him the screwdriver and say, you get to it, son. And, you know, give him all the poker chips for doing all the screws up yeah. in the house and this sort of stuff. And it's, I, it's so simple, but it's something that we watch at this, and because it's the camp is in America too, right? So it's just super fitting. Yeah. Um, to, to watch it there but you it turns into such a thing people get like bloody poker chip tattoos at the shitty tattoo shop in our local town and like people you know they just love it nah I've got lots of tattoos in that dodgy town I don't need poker chip tattoos oh Tosh <laughs> um, yeah I've got some stories behind some of those dodgy tattoo shops but um, 
the people get on it and it's just fills the camp for the summer with this energy and it's just people being fucking nice, nice. to each other That's right. and building up and the camps for kids with autism and Asperger's and ADD and ADHD and stuff. So you already kind of have a template to work from for lack of a better term, but it just fills this place with such positivity and there's people going around, Hey, yeah, it looks cool. I like your t-shirt. Like yeah. it just, and it just becomes this natural thing that you do to other people, to the young people you work with, comes back to you so you feel good too and it's just like you kind of leave and you kind of get a little bit i don't know like i don't like to use it too like flippantly but you kind of get a bit depressed because you're in such a lovely bubble bubble yeah you know yeah um and kids need that and, and i yeah. think all kids need that i think you know we're sort of veering into healthy development and what mm. you know and in building your sense of safety because um i did some work in a role with secure welfare and when i got taken around the secure welfare house I felt incredibly nauseous when I saw that room with the chair and then all the scrape lines like, there's a room with a chair mm. um, it's really you know like a jail it's lot everything's locked there's noises there's mm. all those noises and my job was to um, as a, a trauma expert to go in and talk to the staff and develop a day's training for the staff around trauma um, trauma informed work and it was really interesting because the staff were quite divided group of that sort of more uh, punishment model, mm. consequence to the behavior, you've got to give them a consequence, you've got to be firm, firm boundaries, don't. And then there was the more sort of empathic, nurturing, trauma, more, what I would call trauma informed. And I was the trainer, and I had to hold these two, you know, two groups as the culture of that mm. system was changing to be trauma informed, yeah. but you still had these staff that had found a sense of, uh, ability in doing their job by this sort of more strict mm. rules, professionalism method. It, it, you know, I could see that that would manage their anxiety, mm. and they would know that you know it's very clean, it's very solid, that it's very easy to know if you've done your job well. Whereas trauma informed work is not any yeah. of those things. It's <laughs> messy. It's you know it's uh, intuitive, and it's um, you know you've got to sit with things going up and down mm. can't you know for people who can't do that they really should be working in that sector um, because you you just gotta sort of you can't control you mm. just gotta go with it mm. at, at times and um, you know rely on the protocols in place for the safety um, so I found that really interesting and I said to the principal prac uh, who, who was there do people do the kids knock on the door to come in she said, no one's asked me that before. You know, oh my God, yes, they do. She said someone was in there knocking on the door last night. I said, well, I'm not surprised. And she said, why do you think they're doing it? And I, and I said, because our kids, they have no internal sense of safety mm. because of their development, right? Your, your internal sense of safety is developed through positive care, consistent care, mm. dependable care, and theirs is disrupted and not... So their sense of safety gets externalized to the sound of the lock, gets externalized to, well, if my bedroom door's locked, no one can get in and do things to me in the nighttime. That's a big, big deal. They, be, they become, I mean, the, the term institutionalized, but I think it's, I'm gonna go more in the psychological space. It, their identity starts to form around, um, I can't keep myself safe and I can't expect other people not to hurt me. 
So if I go for more of that attachment sort of development thinking, they're, they're forming in these experiences that are happening to them of violence, 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 violence at home, violence in care, violence in the world, to forming as a human to, you know, I'm, I, I can't keep myself safe. I am in constant form of terror. And nobody, there is nobody on this planet that can keep me safe either. Mm. So the only, you've got to sort of project it out to a locked door or isolation, whether that's isolation in, in a tangible way or isolation in your mind through your drug, your alcohol or your other, you know, just switching off mm. from the fear. And I, and I don't think we understand that enough mm. because we're not seeing it in practice and we're not seeing it in our, our sort of program design. You know, So we're not really truly trauma-informed mm. until we start thinking about our programs from that perspective, are we? From that developmental trauma attachment perspective yeah. and build up from there. What we're trying to do is say, well, this is what we've got. Now let's do trauma-informed practice within these sort of within the realms that we've got, got. Yeah, yeah right mm. and, and hey what a surprise mm. yeah it's not working it's interesting isn't it because i didn't think i remember when i first sort of learned about residential care and out of home care i didn't i just thought they'd all be therapeutic resis mm. but they're not but even the therapeutic resis I mean there's just two kids instead of four and yeah i just had this sort of idea of what yeah, they sorry. would be yeah you know and of they course. don't yeah. They're not. No. And I don't think it's a money debate because if it was a money debate, surely they would look at what it costs for juvenile crime, what it yeah. costs for our prisons. Mm. You know, it can't be really a money debate mm. because if we get this right, it's um, if we do the right thing, it will be cheaper. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, um, how do I put this? I think you touched on it at one point that there becomes a point in the hierarchy, I can call it that, uh, where people who practice, yeah, it stops. The practitioners stop and we end up... They're not necessarily in touch yeah, with the work. that's right. Yeah, so yeah. they're not thinking about trauma when they yeah. fund... It's got to come down, right? It'd be and, interesting yeah. to know within the exec teams of organisations that currently hold residential care units as a part of their programs, like if they actually knew that, like little intricate things like the door locking or um, the regular staff or agency staff, like those little sort of little intricate things that mm. we would think of as workers to go, oh, you know, so-and-so kicked off last night. Okay, well, what happened last night? Let's explore what's like mm. those sort of things. It'd be interesting to know the statistics just for my own personal wanting to know mm. of people within sort of the high up exec teams yeah. if that's stuff that they could identify or if they were aware of within yeah. their organizations Pro yeah i don't yeah you're right probably not a very high number and i just i don't know I'm, i was hoping we had the statistic yes it's actually uh, <laughs> kidding um, but what i'm thinking is though is because you can't how, what are the chances that you have both like it was kind of like the conversation with ben like they're talking about an economic sense of things yeah. and a I don't know what the other word is, like a social sense. Yeah. Like, but why can we not have someone who's uh, skilled in, like, why can we not have a skilled CEO with a business sense, but also a, a like the, a partner like CEO, a practice CEO who is the practice, yeah, CEO or, you know. 
Because I, I mean, maybe you just rewrote the system. Maybe. But I think you would remember going right back to the beginning. You mm. adapt to your environment, mm. right? Mm. We all do that. It's a sort of mammalian thing. It's you know, it's about survival. So when when you get, I was talking to someone today who said, you know, they wanted a better career. They wanted to earn more money. They wanted to build their life. To do that, the sadness in that, and you'll hear this conversation in our sector. You have to move further and further away from the from the thing that got you into this sector, yeah. which was working with the young person, mm. yeah. or working with the family, yeah. or working with the vulnerable person. Yeah. So to earn more money, mm. you have to go further away, mm. and you you don't have to be out of operational work or direct frontline work to start to really forget. Mm. What it you know you you carry still a sense of it, but like. A, you know, until you get back to the front line, you go, oh, this is how crazy this is. Mm. This is what this feels like. Because yeah. you, you've stepped away. You think you could step away and you took it with you. But it's not until you go back there. The world exists without you. Yeah, and yeah. you change and you're adapting to this and you learn all, you know, different types of way to speak mm. and different types of way to, to, you know, survive in the new uh, tribe that you live in. Yeah. Whereas this tribe's moving on yeah. <laughs> without you. So I think there's something about that that can't be changed. Mm. You know, th- again, everything is nuanced and everything is layered and delicate. And there is nothing simple. There is, if it's a simple solution, yeah. we would have done it already. Yeah, we probably wouldn't be riffing about it over a podcast. And even like principal plaques, right? You know, yeah. good. How, how many roles are they? But even that role, which is meant to be a practice leadership role, yeah. Not a business exact mm. practice yeah. leadership yeah. role. But how frontline are that is that mm. role? I mm. don't know, you know, practice li- I don't know. Yeah. They've got to tra- traverse both. Yeah. But I just I just wonder how can you stay in touch mm. with the reality of service delivery mm. and and spite stay at the back and think about strategically reforming it. Yeah. or building capacity yeah you'd have to be pretty mm. special and unique eh? mm. to be able to do that set up your own business set up your <laughs> yeah set up your own your own service um we do often make that joke yeah we do yeah we've been nearly going for two and a half hours um is that normal uh it's a long one but i think it's I, i've loved the conversation i feel like this is we're gonna catch up again i can feel we have to. You know, this I'm is not even ongoing. done. Yeah. What I want to say is, though, I feel like we've covered lots of topics. Mm. Potentially, there's people out there who might feel like we've shit on their area that they work in or their thoughts of things. I'm not sure. My if there is, they're more than welcome to come on the podcast yeah. and join us and have another robust discussion. Or True. we could edit it out. No. that's <laughs> No. We're not going to edit it out. And what I'm going to say, though, is I feel like I want to acknowledge that this is three people talking through stuff yeah, and no one here is pretending that they have all the answers. And I also want to acknowledge that all three of us continue to push forward in this field. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think it would be different if it was people who, um, you know, have, have left the sector or don't even work in it or haven't practiced in it or whatever. Mm. And yeah, we're not experts. Well, I feel like you're definitely an expert. <laughs> Um, but like, yeah, I just, I don't know. I want to say that. I don't know if that makes sense. I get what you mean. I yeah. get what you're saying. But yeah, I don't know. But yeah, it's been. I hope yeah. people don't feel disrespected. I hope I haven't contributed to that because no. for me, it's about being honest, that, respectful, yeah. Yeah. but just being real, real That's right. about 
certainly about my experiences. Yeah. But I, I also think I'm sitting here, like you said, we're still in it. Mm. But sit in it committed, passionate mm, and hopeful mm. and all of the things that, you know, the, the sort of learnings. Yeah. Wanting to offer them. Yeah. Because that is continual learning, right? Yeah. Mm. To say, okay, you've got to identify the things that aren't working. Absolutely. To change them. That's right. So I think if you don't. It's a, yeah, we're having a robust discussion. Yeah. And, you know, so many, so that this is where I think about it, right? When people join the Facebook group, which if you're listening to the podcast, you're probably part of the group and that's how you've heard about it. And for a while we were getting, for whatever reason, I'd love to know the root of it, but we get bogus accounts trying to add themselves to the group. Like the idea of like the Nigerian scammer, you know, like there's obviously something that they can get a benefit out of joining a group. I think with it's a just few how many, when you get more members. But what are they trying to do? Anyway, so I put scam in the people. I put in the yeah, scam people. What's the scam though? I want to know what the scam ends well, up being. Well if you knew, then you wouldn't be scammed. But at the very Would start you? of the when you try and join the group, there's two there's a question that just says, please sort of tell us something to legitimize yourself that you're in this field, right? Like it doesn't have to be specific. Just say like, I work in ResiCare, perfect. I know that you are legit because you're gonna say ResiCare, right? So many people say, I'm starting off my Bachelor of Social Work or I'm doing my diploma in whatever, which tells me that they're starting off their studies. Yeah. And then the next question is, just letting you know we have a podcast connected to the group, Knowledge on Tick, check it out. People say, thanks, no worries, cool, cool idea. One person's like, ah, no, uh, on Tick, eh? Yeah. yeah. So, I'm like, <laughs> so that made me laugh, right? I like that because I don't know if any, everybody understands Knowledge no, on Tick is a bit of so. a pun play. Yeah. I presumed on Tick was in debt. Yeah. 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 So, so yeah. the knowledge is now yeah. you're now in debt and you yeah. need to pay it back, but yeah. not to us. No, because the knowledge is on tick. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but my point is that <laughs> that if you're starting your bachelor of social work and you're listening to these conversations, you're going to go and study for the next yeah. like, four years. You're going to take some of this information with you, and hopefully, you're going to embed parts of the learning that are going to be mostly from the guests. Mm. And take that with you and move forward. And so four years from now when someone graduates and they start working, they're going to hopefully have taken pieces of this, pieces of this conversation, pieces of the conversation with all of the people we've spoken to and embed it and implement it in their work and yeah. share it with their peers. And hopefully there's going to be people having conversations stemming from this. So you might be in the field now and we're having conversations about it and what have you, but the hope is, and I'm sure the hope for everybody is that, because it's not perfect yet, no. we, um, we hope that, people take away from this and improve whatever it is the power of conversation i think you i think from that josh i've got it's more important to have a conversation mm. than not yeah so you know even if you're not really understanding the conversation or something about it you know didn't sound what you wanted to hear that's okay yeah that's absolutely okay because take take from it mm-hmm what is helpful or meaningful or you know inspires you and keep moving forward yeah with mm. whatever your story is mm. whatever yeah. you want to write for yourself be the change mm. you know you know do do whatever you need to do with this but it is just a conversation mm. and you don't have to listen to it if you don't want to true and if you've made it this far then thank you very much <laughs> I was about it. to say we finish every podcast with a surprise question. I know, right? And I feel like you like just gave answer? such good yeah. advice already, yeah, like you yeah. already answered what I'm about <laughs> to ask. But we like to finish with if you had any words of wisdom or pieces of advice for people 
out in the field or listening or in the Facebook group, potentially wanting to change careers or potentially about to start this, what would your pieces of advice be? Uh, I think, you know, I, I've had a long and happy career overall and I wouldn't change a thing. This is my story and I'm writing it in a deliberate way. But my advice would be, and I don't know whether we said it on the podcast, but whether we were talking before because I've lost track, mm -hmm. about the responsive versus reactive. Mm. And so my advice would be to just think about being responsive and not reactive. Just pause before you speak, pause before you act, um, and just be really kind to yourself. You don't have to know all the answers. You know, we spent two and a half hours because we don't know all the answers, <laughs> right? Nobody, I mean, the podcast is another evidence of the answers are lucid mm. and it's not about solution and it's not about finding the answers. It's just being about being with people that are suffering and knowing that that's enough. That is everything. Um, so that's my advice. Just always, you know, if it's a crappy day or things haven't gone well, that you are out there sitting with somebody in pain is so massive um, that you never be unkind in your own head about yourself. Mm. That's it. That's wonderful. <laughs> Not that I expected it to be anything less. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming today and Some sharing pleasure. your time. We yeah, do it's appreciate been great. It. I'm glad our paths got to cross again. Yeah. So, yeah. Thank you. No, it's, you been know, cool. it's been great hanging out with the young people. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to another episode of Knowledge on Tick. Please like and share the podcast, invite your friends and colleagues into the group and get in touch if there are any guest speakers you'd like to hear from or any topics you'd like covered. Take care and enjoy your week.